Hello, and welcome to the Navicast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 20th episode of the Navicast entitled The Hand of the King, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Eddard 4, in which Ned Stark arrives angry to King's Landing, has his first small council meeting, ends up holding a knife to Littlefinger's throat, regrettably not slicing, and hangs out with Catelyn in a brothel. Um, phrasing? Again? Eh, whatever. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And as we say in all of our podcasts, our spoiler warning is for all the published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So if you guys have been listening along with us, you know that the next Patreon special episode is coming your way in about a week from now. That episode is entitled A Burning Crown, The Endgame of Stannis Baratheon. For those of you who are interested in our Patreon, for our $10 and above patrons, you all have the ability to ask us questions. And we have two questions from two of our Sworn Sword patrons this week. Yes, indeed. Sir Travis M. writes us to say, I recently fell into an N plus A equals J and R plus L equals D slash A pit and crawled out to find a world gone mad. For those <laughs> equations to be true, George has to overly complicate both his story and his characters. For John to be Ned and Ashara's son, and for Dany or Egan to be Rhaegar and Lyanna's child, the story has to get so unbelievably convoluted that George not only defies his early writing, but also the characters he created. This would mean Ned would have to truly dishonor himself by having a bastard, abandon his real love with Shara Dane, get her to play along and not throw a holy fit, lie to Catelyn, hide Danny or Egan, risk the rascal his best friend Robert Baratheon the Lannisters, and finally, if she is Septa more, get a shard to fake her own death and assume a new identity to raise Egan. Phew! <laughs> what makes R plus L equals J more compelling is not the hidden prince or lost king fantasy trope, it's the complexity for the characters themselves. Ned is the most honorable man in the realm, and for him to take this falsity upon himself is something that makes sense, because the true knowledge rests solely inside him, and maybe Helen Reed, and it fulfills a promise to Lyanna, saves his nephew John, and protects his whole family from retribution. That's a personal burden that the Honorable Ned Stark can live with and take to his grave. I absolutely agree. Jeff? Yeah, I I, <laughs> I agree too. I mean... I wasn't a. I didn't, I didn't hear a question there, so I mean, I think it's a great <laughs> thesis statement. I think it's it's great that R plus L equals J does have that personal component for Ned Stark and for the people that are surrounding John's parentage. When I look at these these very complex theories of oh, we need to take the the timeline and measure out where Ned was in relation to Lyanna and how long Lyanna was at the Tower of the Joy and when Rhaegar came out of the Tower of Joy to go fight on the Trident. I kind of feel like saying something that George once said. I'm going to paraphrase a little because I don't remember the exact quote, but he said basically, put away your ruler and your stopwatch. This is a story that you're supposed to enjoy. Enjoy the story for what it is. Now, you can definitely take a, you know, a cool amount of analysis and stuff from looking at the timelines and looking at, I don't know, stuff like how many years it's been since Robert's Rebellion, what how old the characters are, what age has done to some of these characters in terms of their personality and their psychology. But I, I take George at his, at his meaning in, in that to say that some of these theories, more outlandish theories about John's parentage, not just John's parentage, but other aspects of the story, do bypass that George is writing a story. And I think that's really 
good to keep in mind that you can do all this analysis and theorizing, but you always have to come back to the fact that George is writing or attempting, and I think succeeding so far, in writing a compelling story that is a song of ice and fire, and that all the analysis and the timeline theorizing is of decidedly secondary, if not tertiary value to what to our understanding of a song of ice and fire. I agree. You're supposed to feel your way through more than strictly logic your way through. And you're supposed to think of it in terms of the characters, as, as Sir Travis M. said. Uh, R plus L equals J is compelling, not just because it fits the available facts, not just because there are blatant textual hints to it all over the series, but especially the first book. R plus L equals J makes sense because it makes Ned make sense. It, it yeah. makes his flashbacks make sense. It makes his feelings and thoughts about John make sense. It adds, it adds a layer of resonance to him trying to save Danny from Robert. And, uh, yeah, you described the other theories as, as complex. I would, I would call them complicated. I don't think they've earned complex. <laughs> R plus L equals J is complex. That has, you know, emotional layers to it and, and makes yes. the characters, uh, you know, richer and more interesting and adds real weight to the backstory. Those, the other theories are just, are just complicated for the sake of complication. They don't resolve anything. They don't add up to anything. They don't, they don't make you more excited to learn about the characters and an execution, it, it would feel cheap. I think yeah. it's also a product, of course, of us marinating in the text for too long without any additions, because R plus L equals J is the twist. Like, that's, mm-hmm. it's not, that's not the baseline expectation that these other theories would then represent a twist from. That R plus L equals J is what we're supposed to go... is, is, is the revelation for us. Yeah. The fact that we've figured it out does not change <laughs> that. Like... Yeah. Which I think people have to keep in mind. Like... The fandom solving an equation does not change the reality of what's already in the text. Like the, you've seen shows like Westworld run into trouble trying to keep ahead of their audience in that way. But I think Martin's been pretty clear that the audience is not, you know, causing him to actually change what's the major revelations of the story, especially this one. Mm-hmm. So any theory except R plus L equals J involving those main participants, I think, is off on the wrong track at this point. Yeah, and it's something else that George had said at one point a few years ago where someone asked him, do fans ever come up to you and talk about their theories? And he says, yes. And did they get things right? And he says, yeah. And then the follow-up question was something to the effect of, well, does that make you want to change your story? And George reportedly said that no. And the reason why is that if you are setting up the foundation of foreshadowing for the, that the butler was the murderer in the story, and then all of a sudden you pull this twist that it was actually not the butler, it was the maid who did it, then it's it's a cheap twist. It's Shyamalan, although Shyamalan gets a bad rap for that unjustly, in my opinion. Um, but the, the the wording is still the same. Like if you if suddenly John is the son of Ned and Ashara, it doesn't add to the story. It doesn't create a better story it creates a rabbit out of a hat type of story where you're like oh well i guess that nothing that has been foreshadowed and has had significant groundwork built around it means anything and i don't think that george is that type of writer and i I know he's not that type of writer from looking at different books that he's finished you know if you look at dying of the light if you look at the conclusion of that book and i won't spoil it for you guys it's well set up in the books and the twist at the very end of the book is not a twist that's just out of nowhere. It comes from a very much the foundational level of the book and it's a great story. And I think that's the same sort of motif that George is going for and that he wants to create the twist of John's parents as Rhaegar and Lyanna 
But in doing so, he's create, creating all the foreshadowing and groundwork for it. To get a, do a little bit of a tangent, I wrote a, a two-part essay series on how George reveals mysteries about the, the death of John Aaron, who actually murdered John Aaron. And when you go back to the text, you can see all of the places where George has laid kind of a false breadcrumb of who actually killed John Aaron, whether it was Cersei Lannister, whether it was Pycelle, but he's also laying a true breadcrumb trail of hints and foreshadowing and groundwork that it was actually Lysa and Littlefinger who were behind John Aaron's death. And I think the same applies for Jon Snow's parentage. He has laid false clues that it's Ashara, that it's Wyla, that it's the fish, um, the fisherman's daughter. The, yeah. The, the, the one on the ways. sisters, right? Yep. Yeah, yep, from the, that Daoist chapter in Dance with Dragons. But he's also has laid a fantastic and wonderful foundation for John's true parentage being revealed as Rhaegar and Lyanna, and I think that's where the story is going, and I I think the show kind of got even ahead of the book readers and the analysis and the theories, and that they show John's parents as Rhaegar and Lyanna, and I think that that's a hard hurdle to overcome. But I mean, that's that's all kind of beyond beside the point of what um, Sir Travis is getting at and that it makes sense in the character that John's parentage as coming from Rhaegar and Lyanna is completely resting in who these characters are and who Ned is and who Helen Reed will be, or as I hope to find out come, you know, Windsor or Dream of Spring, whenever he, he pops up in the books. Yeah, it's going to make people who haven't figured it out or, you know. Probably everyone has heard about it by now, but you know, if, if you're just a complete, co- completely casual reader who just you know hasn't read the books since the Dance with Dragons came out, picks up wins when it comes out, hasn't taken part in anything, hasn't watched the show, you you could still go, oh, of course that makes sense when R plus L equals J is revealed. It'll it'll add up in your mind just from what you've read. Uh, whereas any other twist would just makes make you go, oh, okay then. Yeah, and that's that's that's, 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 cool. ulti- that's ultimately where it fails for me. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Very much agree. So thanks, Sir Travis, for the question. Actually, thank you for the thesis statement. We'll say that. It was a great thesis statement. Please, if you ever can think about it, put it into some sort of writing form. I think it's a great discussion to have and a great thing that you can write and include all sorts of quotes from the books and from other things that George has said. So again, thanks, Sir Travis. Our second question comes from Sir James R., who asks, here's a question for some time in the future. You can pick the show in addition to whether you to whether or not you care to answer. What's the deal with Valyrian steel swords and Essos? It seems like there should be a lot there. It seems like people as rich as Tywin and Mace should be able to buy some. The people of Marine, Astapor, and Yunkai don't seem to have any. This is an area of world building that doesn't make sense to me. I, I would kind of agree. What do you think, Emmett? Yeah, that's true. I think this is mostly for convenience sake for George and anything else. It would be difficult for Danny to win a lot of victories if she was going up with armies armed with Valyrian steel swords. Yes. Um, uh, I think that, you know, Martin just kind of wanted to remove that off the equation. And he, like any anything else in your story, including dragons that are supposed to be rare and special, you don't want too many of them floating around. You know, Correct. you want to kind of emphasize that. So I think that might be more of a narrative decision than it is a world-building decision. If we had to take a stab at it, I'm sure the, you know, the Doom had a huge impact, of course. I'm sure a lot of mm-hmm. the Valyrian steel swords in Essos were centered in Valyria itself and its, its outposts. Uh, it's possible that the Slavers Bay cities have like a cultural thing about Valyria or because they, you know, they're, they're trying to be the, the descendants of old geese who fought Valyria in multiple wars and they don't want, you know, they, 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 they feel they'd rather have something connected to the harpy than something connected to the dragon. Yeah. Uh, which, which is ironic, of course, because they, you know, they're speaking Valyrian and they are practicing Valyrian chattel slavery. So the influence is still there. But, yeah. you know, maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, maybe they were, you know, stolen by 
uh, warlocks or sell swords or pirates or maybe, <laughs> maybe there's an organized campaign. You know, maybe the Dothraki have them. You think that would have gotten revealed, but maybe we'll turn up advice Dothrak and the Winds of Winter and they'll have a, a, a huge cachet of Lyrian steel swords that'll be presented to Dany in some symbolic thing or something. Hmm. Uh, any, any number of possibilities. Martin can still pull a rabbit out of a hat here in this case if he wants to, since it's not a character thing like R plus L equals J, but purely a world-building nugget. What do you think, sir? Well, it's interesting. You brought up something that I hadn't considered is that the Dothraki might have the Valyrian steel swords. And we know that there are things like Valyrian steel Arax that the one Dothraki soldier carries or, or blood rider carries. Okay, is that Ricaro or is that J- J- Jaco? I can't remember which one it was. I'll have to look it up. But it could be that, they, that the Dothraki have Valyrian steel swords. My theory was more... Um, my headcanon for why this is the case is more related to the history of Valyria and how Valyria was essentially at war with everyone in Essos. And why would you sell weapons to your enemies, the Giscari or the Bravosi or any of these other different places and tribes and cities that you're you're fighting against and you're trying to conquer Essos on behalf of the glory of, of old Valyria? So I, I would think that might be the reason why i mean like if can you imagine the united states selling its i don't know tanks to you know the russians or the north koreans or or something like that kind of seems like a like a bad bad deal altogether uh meanwhile but but westeros though is not really much of a threat to to the valyrians they're kind of the backwards people who are still kind of dwelling in this medieval setting whereas the free cities in valyria are explicitly shown to be a more advanced civilization and the other free cities and different tribes are shown to be a bigger threat to Valyria than Westeros could ever be. So that's kind of my mini theory on it, but I, I think it'd be cool if there's a cachet of of Valyrian steel weapons that are lying around that they grab, because I think it's something that comes up in Sam and John's chapters in Feast and Dance, where they're talking about, well, we can't really get all the lords of Westeros to give up their Valyrian steel swords for us to fight against the others, because they're, they come across that passage, um, that Sam comes across that passage in the old library. They're trying to figure out what swords actually work against the others, and they determine that it's probably Valyrian steel, but it's not, they call it dragon steel in, in the, in the old texts. So they think it's Valyrian steel, and they're pretty skeptical that the Lords of Westeros are going to be like, yeah, sure, you can have my ancestral blade that I passed down, that has been passed down for thousands of years, or hundreds of years, whatever it is. That's fine. So it'd be cool if there was some way that they could get a bunch of Valyrian steel weapons, and maybe they'll find a cache, a cache at some point, but we'll see. Yeah, of course, it's not Valyrian steel, but they do have a cache of dragon glass at Dragonstone, so I'm sure that's going to come into play somehow. And yeah, I think it would be interesting if John's the line about it will never get the lords to give up their Valyrian steel swords is foreshadowing for them doing so uh, in the face of the others, or at least some of them doing so. I think that would be interesting. That might be a little too corny in execution to, to, to really be effective, though, in this particular story. I have difficulty imagining Randall Tarley, for example, no. giving up his sword. That's going to that's gonna be a cold, dead hand sort of situation. Yes, and Sam will take that sword from Randall Tarley's cold, dead hands. Here's hoping, anyways. Here's hoping. So thank you, gentlemen, for the two questions for this week. Again, on June 28th, we'll be releasing our next Patreon-only episode. It is, again, all about the endgame of Stannis Baratheon. It'll be available for all of our $5 and above patrons on the 28th of June. And for our Lord's Commander and Kingsguard patrons, it'll be available a few days before that. So definitely, if you're interested in checking out our Patreon, our address is patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. So, great questions. 
again, as we always come to this point where we transition the podcast to what we're actually going to be talking about, which is a fantastic chapter in A Game of Thrones, which is Eddard Four. And here is its synopsis. Ned Stark arrives in King's Landing unhappy, hoping for a shower, some chow, and a nap. Instead, he's summoned by Grand Maester Pacell to a small council meeting. He grouses a bit, but agrees to head on over to the small council chambers, ordering his men to take care of his belongings, find some clothing for him, and to ensure that Arya doesn't go off exploring the Red Keep. Hmm. Orders given, clothing acquired, Ned heads on over to the small council chambers in borrowed clothing and finds four councillors waiting for him. Varys, Littlefinger, Pacell, and Renly. The first to greet Ned is the one he dislikes the most, Varys. The eunuch weirdly decides to poke Ned by telling him that he heard about the troubles on the road and they've all been visiting the Sept to light candles for Prince Joffrey. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Ned coolly and politely tells Varys that his prayers have been answered. The prince is growing stronger. Next, Ned walks over to Littlefinger and Renly, complimenting Renly about how he looks very much like a young Robert. A poor copy, Renly jests. Though better dressed, Lord Renly spends more on clothing than half the ladies of the court, Littlefinger banners back. Then Littlefinger in turn decides to poke Ned, asking if Catelyn Stark, his wife, ever spoke to him. Talking about Ned's brother Brandon and needling Ned about how the heat probably doesn't suit Ned. Here in the South, they say you're all made of ice and melt when you ride below the neck. Yeah. Finally, Ned introduces himself to the ancient Grand Maester Purcell, who wears a maester's chain of multiple colors and stones. He, he is also old and tired and warns Ned that he'll fall asleep if they delay the meeting much longer. The council now assembled, Ned looks over the group, thinking back to Robert's statement that his small council was full of flatters and fools. He thinks he knows which one is which, but does he? Hmm. Ned points out that there's only five members present, and he's told that, his, that the king's brother, Lord Stannis, sailed to Dragonstone right after Robert left King's Landing, while Sir Barristan is escorting Robert through King's Landing as befits his role as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. When Ned suggests waiting for Barristan and Robert to join, Renly laughs and tells Ned, if we wait for my brother to grace us with his royal presence, it could be a long sit. You see, Robert's not really into the whole coins and crops side of ruling the kingdom. So Ned decides to proceed with the council business. The first and last matter of the day, Robert has a command. Hold a great tournament to honor Ned Stark being named as Hand of the King. Gods be good, Ned swears. This is folly. And a folly at a cost. 40,000 golden dragons to the champion, 20,000 to the man who comes in second, another 20,000 to the man who wins the melee, and 10,000 to the victor of the archery competition. 90,000 golden dragons in rewards, and lots of secondary tertiary costs. Can the treasure bear the cost, Tysel wonders? What treasure is that? Littlefinger replies. Spare me the foolishness, Maester. You know as well as I that the treasury has been empty for years. Well, that's not good. And how will Littlefinger pay for the money? Well, of course he's going to borrow money from the Lannisters. Besides, they already owe the Lannisters three million in golden dragons anyways. What's a hundred thousand more? Ned is stunned, outraged. How can they be three million in debt? Well, it's a little bit worse than all that, Ned. They're actually about six million in debt. You see... Littlefinger has borrowed $3 million for the Lannisters and another $3 million from other sources. House Tyrell, the Iron Bank of Bravos, and Tyroshi trading cartels. Of late, they've even had to borrow from the High Septon and the Faith of the Seven. Well, by the gods, Ned won't stand for this financial malfeasance. He'll talk with Robert, and he'll convince him that the Crown can't bear the expense. Yeah, good luck with that, Ned. Tired and annoyed, Ned abruptly calls the small council session to a halt and rolls out of the meeting. Outside of the council chambers, Ned reflects on the state of things between House Stark and the king's family. After the ugly business on the Triton, the Starks stayed well ahead of the main party and kept away from the king, the Lannisters, and the rising tension. But on the home front, things haven't been good either. Sansa blamed Arya for the death of Lady, and Arya was lost after she heard what happened to Micah. The rest of the way, Sansa cried herself to sleep every night, and Arya brooded. 
Ned dreams of a frozen hell reserved for the Starks of Winterfell as a result of seeing his daughters in bad spirit. Just then, Littlefinger appears, telling Ned that he's going the wrong way. Weirdly, I guess, Ned follows Littlefinger. When it appears they aren't going back to the Hand's chamber and Ned says as much, Littlefinger tells him, I'm leading you to the dungeons to slit your throat and seal your corpse up behind a wall. Whew, very obvious foreshadowing. Anyways, Littlefinger claims that he's leading Ned to his wife. Ned disbelieves Littlefinger, telling him that Catelyn is thousands of miles away at Winterfell. Littlefinger replies that it must be Cat, or an astonishing impersonation. Either come or don't, Ned. And if you don't, Littlefinger will keep Catelyn for herself. Yikes. Ned again follows, and they reach a cliff. Littlefinger climbs down it, poking Ned about him being too old and slow. Terrified, Ned follows suit and finds little nooks in the cliff face that guide him to the ground below. When Ned finally reaches the ground, Littlefinger is waiting with horses and eating an apple like an asshole. They ride until they come across a ramshackle building, a brothel. Ned is furious. You brought me all this way to take me to a brothel? Your wife is inside, Littlefinger says. Shouldn't have said that, asshole. Ned throttles Littlefinger, throwing his body against the wall of the brothel, and then draws his dagger and prepares to kill the man until Sir Roger Cassell calls out and tells Ned that Littlefinger is speaking the truth. Amazed at hearing a familiar voice and then recognizing Sir Roderick, Ned releases Littlefinger and follows the Master of Coin and Sir Roderick into the brothel. They climb three flights of stairs and then Catelyn is there. She runs into Ned's arms and they embrace. Ned asks why Cat is in King's Landing, and she shows him the blade in her hands and then she tells Ned the story that Littlefinger told her. It was Tyrion's blade, and he'd sent the cat's ball after Bran. It doesn't make sense to Ned, and why would it? Bran had never done Tyrion any wrong. Littlefinger all but implies that Tyrion wasn't working alone. Ned thinks that Cersei may have done it, but not Robert, except, well, didn't Robert talk about sending hired knives after the exiled Targaryens and turned away from the murder of the infant Aegon Targaryen at the end of Robert's Rebellion? Yeah, the thought really sends a chill ratcheting down Ned's spine. But Littlefinger says they did, that they don't really have proof. Tyrion would lie about the dagger. Hmm. And if he accused the Queen of Treason, he'd face Sir Illyn. Major foreshadowing alert. It's probably best for Ned to throw the dagger into the Blackwater Rush and forget about the whole thing, or so says Littlefinger. Ned Stark has a different opinion. Lord Baelish, I am a Stark of Winterfell. My son lies crippled, perhaps dying. He would be dead and Catelyn with him but for the wolf pup we found in the snow. If you truly believe I could forget that, you are as big a fool as now as when you took up sword against my brother. Littlefinger then japes about how he'll try to keep Ned alive, calling it a fool's task, and then again pokes Ned about never being able to refuse Catelyn anything. Man, such a fucking asshole. Catelyn to ask for a moment alone with Ned. Littlefinger says he usually charges for that sort of thing, but Ned needs to be back at the Red Keep before long before their absence is noted. Cat thanks Littlefinger, and Littlefinger, in classic villain monologue, claims that he's desperately sentimental and that he'd spent his whole career convincing everyone that he's cruel and wicked when he's really not. Spoilers, he actually is cruel and wicked. Ned doesn't believe Littlefinger at all, thank you Ned, but he thanks Littlefinger for his quote-unquote help. Along with Catelyn, Ned begins giving orders. Orders for war. Sir Helmut Tallhart and Gobbert Glover are to raise 200 bowmen in total and fortify Moat Kaelin. Lord Manderley will strengthen and repair the defenses of White Harbor. And keep an eye over Theon. They may need the Greyjoy fleet if it comes to war. I'm trying to keep my editorializing to a minimum, but Ned, really? Uh, okay. The thought of war scares Catelyn and Ned, and Ned tries to reassure her that it won't come to that. The Lannisters can't hope to invade the North unless the whole of the realm was at their back. Meanwhile, Ned would work on finding out who killed Jon Arryn, and when he found the proof, he would bring it to Robert. And pray that he is the man I think he is, he finished, he finished silently, and not the man I fear he has become. And that is the conclusion to A Game of Thrones Editor 3. Whew, talk about a chapter that super really ramps up the tension and intrigue in the story, man. Like this chapter, I 
I couldn't stop rereading this chapter when I was doing the uh, the preparation for this chapter. It's it's a great chapter. It certainly is, and I love the tone it sets immediately. It's 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 your first day at the office. Your commute was hell. You're exhausted and extremely cranky. Your coworkers are quote flatterers and fools, and you just realized your job consists of spending money you don't have on things nobody <laughs> needs on behalf of a boss who doesn't care. All with your name slapped on everything. And not only that, but after your first staff meeting, the unbearable prick two discs over puts you through an elaborate hazing ritual while reminding you of that time he asked out your wife. Who was there, by the way? And she has nothing but bad news for you. Welcome to your new life, I <laughs> You gotta feel for the guy in this chapter. And um, Oh, yeah. Tonally and structurally speaking, Eddard IV reminds me, and this may strike you as an odd comparison, of a Theon chapter, specifically those in Winterfell and A Clash of Kings. Ned is ostensibly in charge in this chapter, but like Theon at Winterfell, he spends it a step behind. He's uncertain, mm -hmm. uncomfortable, grasping after the power he feels he ought to possess. He's being stared down with raised eyebrows by the people over whom he now claims authority, and he's increasingly desperately aware of the, of the floor falling out from underneath him. Now, of course, I hold Ned in higher regard, given that Theon's arc and clash <laughs> climaxes with him doing the thing that Ned refuses to do, which is kill children. But that sense of confusion and exhaustion is the same, and that's what lingers about this chapter for me more than anything plot-specific. It's Ned's first day in King's Landing, it's his first meeting with the small council, but it's not really a portrait of his leadership as a hand. Uh, that comes more in Eddard 8, when he's arguing with Robert over Daenerys' fate, and in Eddard 11, of course, when he's sitting the Iron Throne itself and sending Beric Tondarian and company after Gregor Clegane. Uh, Eddard 4 is less about how Ned deals with his environment and more about how his environment is going to deal with him. <laughs> he's being interrupted, inconvenienced, and bewildered throughout the chapter. That's not to say he's dumb, as we'll get into that as, as we go into the chapter, but it's an early sign that this isn't going to end well for him. Yeah. And, and of course, the subtext of this gathering sense of dread is that this is the place, this is the city, this is the castle where Ned's father and brother were murdered by the Mad <laughs> King and where his righteous rebellion in response was soured by the massacre of Rhaegar's family, as you noted in your summary he thinks about at one point in the chapter. Yeah. And that, uh, quote, terrible knowledge, from, uh, to borrow from Bran Three, courses underneath this chapter, and upon reread it goes hand in hand with the terrible knowledge that Ned is going to die here too. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's something that you definitely catch in rereading, about how much of Ned's past is influencing his emotional state in the present. It's something that is very much subtext, although it's kind of bubbles to the surface here, especially as you and I both pointed out, where he's talking about uh, Aegon Targaryen and his death and seeing him wrapped in a Lannister cloak and being placed before Robert in the Iron Throne. Like that is very much something that bubbles to the surface. It is a bitter, bitter memory. And if you remember from a previous chapter, it had only been the death of Lyanna that had brought the two men back together. Because at that point, Ned said, fuck this shit. Like, I am done with Robert. Like, I, I do not count, countenance the murder of children. That's not why we went to war. We went to war to stop the murder of children. You know, and that's something that comes up later in, in Eddard 8, as, as you referenced before. Um, but yeah, that, that shared history that he has with a, a city or a setting does have a major impact on how he's feeling. And so when Littlefinger says, all you Starks melt here when you get south of the neck, that's a cutting, cutting jibe. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth later on, but it's a cutting, cutting jibe because he is essentially twisting the knife that your, your dad, your brother died here. They were horribly killed here too. It wasn't that they just died in battle. You know, Rickard was burned to death 
and Brandon was strangled trying to save his father's life. That that's that's a a degree of cruelty and a degree of brutality that is that is traumatizing. Even if you weren't even present, even if Ned wasn't even in the throne room for the Red Keep, he has to experience that. And I would say, and it's not explicitly revealed in the text until Catelyn's last chapter in A Clash of Kings, but I would say that Ned's probably aware of what actually happened to his brother and father and likely kept the brutality and the horror of that from Catelyn. That seems like a very Ned thing to do, but it does just kind of course its way and weave its way through this chapter in, in subtext about how angry Ned is feeling. And he is feeling definitely angry about events that have occurred along the road south to King's Landing, but there's that history there that is also setting the foundation for Ned's emotional state in King's Landing. Very true. And it all serves to uh, undercut Ned's position and authority and, and presumed glory as Hand of the King. I absolutely love how this chapter starts. Yes. There's no pomp and circumstance whatsoever. It's, quote, Eddard Stark rode through the towering bronze doors of the Red Keep, sore, tired, hungry, and irritable. It me. <laughs> I just, I love that phrase, sore, tired, uh-huh. hungry, and irritable. That's an excellent turn of phrase. Uh, he was still a horse dreaming of a long, hot soak a roast fowl in a feather bed, when the king's steward told him that Grand Maester Pycelle had convened an urgent meeting of the small council. So, starting the chapter this way has multiple effects. Uh, as you say, it reminds us of the toil and grief of the journey here, everything that happened uh, in the Derry era that we covered in Sansa 1 and Eddard 3. Yep. So that prevents us from considering this a fresh start for Ned, in any sense. His his clothes are, are sweaty, he's, he's tired, and the burden is with him. So this is not... Not a clean slate for Ned in any respect. It's very much bringing what happened on the road with him. It, it undercuts the Red Keep itself. And again, there's that phrase, towering bronze doors. The Red Keep is very grand and, and rich and complex looking. And uh, Ned spends a little time describing the council room itself is very well furnished. There's like mirrorish carpets and wall hangings. And, you know, the Red, it's, of course, it's the, 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 the center of the realm. This is, this is what all, all the peasants' tax money is going to, uh, yeah. is, is, is to keep in this place looking nice. But it's undercut by how Ned is described physically and temperamentally in this moment. There's there's no there's no grandiosity here, no sense of trumpets blaring and a choir in the background going ah like none of that. It's, <laughs> it's very very down to earth, you know, very very kind of disillusioned, kind of an emperor has no clothes kind of thing. Even before you get to the small council meeting, there's a sense that the Red Keep is not quite as glorious as it pretends to be, just from the way this starts. And of course, the other big effect of describing Ned this way is contrasting him with, uh, like, Varus and Renly and the people wearing perfumes. Like, Ned is, like, sweaty mm-hmm. and, like, he's, he's uh, you know, uh, needs to get his naps in before he starts yelling at people. <laughs> and it, it makes him seem much more kind of fallible, but also just human and relatable. Whereas yeah. Varus always seems... To, like, Varus is someone who always has the Lord's face on, to put it in Ned terms. Yes. Uh, and, and Ned, you know, makes 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 us like him more, that he, he feels more like a, a, a flawed, uh, tired mortal in this moment. Um, not, not the hand of the king, as you would think with that phrase. Overall, just it, it sets a tone of discomfort and discombobulation right off the bat, which is perfectly appropriate given how this chapter plays out. It is that, and it's really a great contrast. I think the contrast is, is terrific. It's also a cultural contrast, too, where you have the Starks as kind of the salt of the earth type of house, even though they're nobles. And then you have these soft, powdered, perfumed Southerns, just and, and well-dressed, of course, too. The other thing that, that 
comes up in the chapter is that he actually has to borrow clothes to come to the yes. small council chamber because he's so sweaty from being on the on the road that he he doesn't have any clothes to wear and his chests are still coming down and that's a great little touch yeah yeah you, you have to imagine like Ned like putting on a shirt and like you know the sleeves only come halfway down his arm and the sure. the pants legs or whatever the the thing is the tunic legs are are too short and they're like kind of like holding in like weird places and so it, it kind of it sets a great Martin paints a terrific picture of who Ned is and how he's how he's experiencing King's Landing his his first time in King's Landing in a number of years. But the interesting thing about this chapter is that we get our introduction to the counselors of the small council, the ones that are going to be constant companions of ours through at least a storm of swords for the most part, for at least three of them. And then um, and then yeah, and then Ned describes them as flatters and fools. So you want to take us through each of the counselors and what they're like and why what Ned's opinions of them are? Sure, let's break down the small council, shall we, or at least the ones who are present. Uh, and Martin goes through them very deliberately as Ned walks into the room and uh, says his greetings to each one, so we get a sense of them right away, even though we've met most of them before, but now we're meeting them in an official context, doing their job. Uh, we start with Varus, who, interestingly, Ned notes, is the one that he likes the least, <laughs> which I think is an interesting note. We never really get an explicit confirmation as to why the obvious guess is that uh, Varus is widely publicly associated with uh, Eris's uh, descent into madness or descent yes. into really dangerous, uncontrollable madness. Uh, this is something that Stannis brings up later. Barristan says that the rotten Eris's realm started with Varus. So uh, it's Ned probably dislikes Varus for that reason. Uh, yes, that, I agree. Of course, given where Eris's madness led with regard to his family. Uh, it could also just be a general... People are just generally uncomfortable with Varus, too. Varus does bring up uh, Joffrey's health, as you know, which is an interesting kind of double-edged sword there. On the one hand, yeah, of course, he's not hes not actually praying for Joffrey to, to, to be well and prosper, given what Varus's plans are for the realm regarding young Griff. But it is the second time he brings up the children. He brought up Bran in Catelyn 4 when we met him in Littlefinger's office. And uh, so this is a consistent theme with Varus where he's lamenting the the death and the wounding of children and of innocence. And, of course, he's putting on a show and he's trying to read people out. But uh, given how he talks in private moments uh, and given his efforts to smuggle Gendry out of the city at the end of this book, I think I think you can reach the conclusion that this is only half-feigned, that Varus does have this genuine desire to protect innocent people. Uh, but, of course, it's undercut by him cutting the tongues out of the, the children he uses as spies, because that's how Varus rolls. He's an arch-utilitarian who thinks any amount of blood spilled is worth it if, in the end, Westeros is going to be saved. But, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting to note that this is a repeated motif in Varus's early appearances, that he's bringing up children and how he doesn't want to see them hurt or killed. Yes. And of course, in terms of his overall strategy, what he's doing here, as we later learn in Edward Seven, is that he's observing Ned to see what he'll do. He doesn't really have a strong idea of Ned Stark as a political actor yet, so he's he's just kind of you know watching him with kind of a skeptical eye. Only after Ned intervenes to stop Robert from participating in the melee at the Hands Tourney does Varus realize that Ned is someone he can and should work with. What do you think is the reason why Varus doesn't have a good sense of Ned? Now we we do have that. Same sort of motif at work in the Catelyn chapter, in that Varus is constantly observing and is providing small amounts of intelligence. But you would think that Varus would have some sort of idea of who Ned is and the type of person he is, if only because he's met him, or likely has met him during Robert's Rebellion, because Varus, of course, survives 
um, the sack of King's Landing and survives uh, to come onto the small council, to Robert's small council, which you assume that Ned was probably at least a part of the beginning of that. So why do you think that Varus just is, is I mean, I, I guess he's, he's observing him, sure, but why doesn't he have a good sense of who the Starks are at this juncture in the story? He knows that they're a noble family. He knows that the Lord, the Lord's paramount of the, um, of the North. He knows that they're a powerful house and he knows that they, they're Robert, these, that Ned is Robert's best friend. You would think that he would have a better idea of who Ned is, at least as a person before coming, deciding to reach out to him in a more friendly manner, uh, coming forward. Because one of the things that's, that's ironic is that the counselor that Ned likes the least is the one that means him the least amount of harm, at least at this juncture in the story. And he wants to preserve Robert's life and his reign for his own purposes, mainly because he wants to delay the chaos and the, the warfare in, in Westeros until Aegon is absolutely ready to um, mount his campaign. Yeah, it's a fair question. Uh, I, I get the sense Varys is not generally interested in the North. It doesn't really come up. He doesn't. He's, not, he's rarely delivering intelligence in that regard. He certainly doesn't seem aware of the aware of or caring about the wildling invasion or the others. So maybe that's just Varus's general bias just towards the south and east in terms of where his little birds are and where he's focusing on. Uh, you know, I think about how the for the Tyrells and the Red Wines, the the north is basically a backwater that they don't yeah. seem to care about or regard as influential in any way. Maybe Varus kind of thinks that way about the north. That it's it's. Uh, I mean. Uh, Again, like we said before, Ned kind of shows up out of nowhere in terms of the schemes of everyone in King's Landing. So maybe Varus, is, it was just so unexpected he never thought he would have to deal with it. The other possibility is, is he might have a sense of who Ned is temperamentally, but it was surprised by him accepting the job as Hand of the King. Maybe he's wondering whether Ned is more ambitious than he thought uh, and, and wants to see him at work. You, you do think the one thing he would know about Ned is the bond between him and Robert. So it is right. odd that Varus later says he had to find that out before acting. That... That is an odd note. But, I mean, more than anything else, I think it's just that Martin can't let Varus reveal himself quite yet. So he has to come up with a reason for that. There's always the possibility, too, that when he later talks with Ned, it's it's after Ned has successfully convinced Robert not to fight in the melee. And Varus has been exposed in his entire career as the Master of Whispers to people who are yes-men to the king and what the king wants, whether it's Ares before him and then Robert now. This is the first guy that's actually really challenged Robert in any meaningful way and has convinced the king from doing a stupid and really dumb and to, from doing a stupid and illogical and dangerous thing. And maybe that's what is the trigger that Vars is like, ah, so he's not just a he's not just Robert's best friend. He's actually a guy that's that gives a damn about Robert. He's not just like a, a false friend that, you know, just happened to grow up with this with the, with Robert that he sees the guy who actually gives real good, he actually gives good counsel and friendship to his best friend. Yeah, he's someone who will tell Robert no, which is, as Robert says on his deathbed, Ned was only, always the only one who would do that. Yeah. So maybe that's what impressed Varus. I think that's a good point. Uh, stepping on to the next counselor that uh, Ned encounters, it is, of course, Renly. And Ned, as you said in your summary, is immediately overwhelmed by this, this spooky sense that he's looking at young Robert, fresh <laughs> off his victory from the Trident. And Renly, of course, calls himself, quote, a poor copy of Robert. He said it, folks, not us. Not us, not us. Those are Renly's words. (laughs) And I love that, of course, Renly's being sarcastic. I'm sure he thinks himself as a superior copy to Robert. But of course, uh, I'm I'm guessing Martin is not being sarcastic there and genuinely does think about Renly that way. And uh, that, of course, the way Ned thinks about Renly is it's connected to Robert's nostalgia about himself and about his own athleticism and youth that he has lost. 
because, uh, you know, the, the notion of a Robert fresh from the Trident is very appealing to Ned because that Robert hasn't screwed up yet. Yeah. That Robert hasn't gotten fat. That Robert hadn't, hasn't presided over or approved, rather, the murder of children. You know, this is right him. before the death the deaths of Rhaegar's family. So, like, Renly is a blank slate in Ned's mind. He's, he's appealing because, you know, he recaptures that, that easy time. Well, not an easy time, because, of course, they were at war and Ned's family was dying, but the easy sure. time in terms of his relationship to Robert before that got yeah. really complicated and before they got older. So Renly embodies this kind of easy, blind nostalgia that has really consumed Robert whole. So I think I'm, we're going to be watching this going forward. I think, you know, Renly's being framed not as young Robert because he's an idealistic, better version, but because he's the wool being pulled over your eyes. He's the easy image that, as we've seen with Robert, uh, can so easily fall apart once you actually put it to the test. You know, what's interesting is that I was uh, rewatching. So this episode, I actually rewatched some of the uh, Game of Thrones scenes from that are featured in Eddard 4 from season one of Game of Thrones, the TV show. What's interesting is that in the first small council session, Ned goes up to Renly and embraces him in the exact same way. Go ahead and rewatch it. The exact mm-hmm. same way as he embraces Robert in the first episode from Game of Thrones, the show where Robert shows up to to Winterfell and he does that whole thing where he kind of wraps around this big hug. What it's doing is visually communicating to us that he's looking at Renly as very much a Robert type figure. He looks like Robert, as we're going to find out. He has Robert's worst impulses. He has corrected some of them, I guess, in that he's not overweight yet. But again, he's only like, what, 20 years old in this chapter, I think? He's, he, as, as Sansa refers to his extreme youth upon his introduction, yeah, Renly's only 21. So, 20 or 21. I think 20 in this book, maybe 21 by the time he dies. Yeah, so it's... it's He's very much not like Robert. He's very much Robert coming out of the tribe. I think it's a terrific point in that he is the idealized version of Robert here. But he hasn't had the cares, and he hasn't had a terrible marriage. He hasn't had... Watched his one true love die, although his one true love watches him die. Um, later on in Clash of Kings, we find out, which is kind of an interesting connection there. And... You know, Renly is is kind of Robert. He also has a lot of Robert's worst instincts, and he actually makes. Well, as we're gonna, we'll, we'll talk about that. I don't want to get. I don't want to get to a Renly shit on Renly fest yet. I mean, we got plenty of time to do that. We've got a whole plenty two books to get sure. get that. But yeah, what do you think about Renly's like uh, appearance? Like, is it there's something at work in Martin's talking about spending a lot of words talking about Renly's appearance and what he's what his image is. It's certainly part of Renly's public politics, but yeah, you do have Martin's commenting that Renly spent lavishly on clothing, which uh, might just be, again, a hint that he's all image, but it also might be Martin trying to communicate this early on that Renly's gay. Not, of course, suggesting that if you, that all gay people spend lavishly on clothing, or that if you spend lavishly on clothing, you're inherently gay, or anything like that. But it is it is a trope used to varying degrees of obnoxiousness, and, yeah, you know... To the extent that eyebrows would be raised at it now, probably not so much in the 90s when, when Martin was writing this. So it, it, that might be Martin trying to get this across even before you get to blatant stuff like the Rainbow Guard or uh, his relationship with Loris, where, where Martin's yeah. not even trying to hide it anymore. So uh, that might be possible uh, this early on. The other thing that interested me by this introduction of Renly is that he's shown chatting with Littlefinger as Ned walks in. Oh, yeah. And that makes it brings up something I've been wondering about for a while, whether there's kind of a, a tacit wink and nudge alliance between Renly and Littlefinger. Not like a direct conspiracy uh, similar to the one between Varys and Illyrio, 
but more a sense that they kind of know what the other one is doing and that they're okay with it and they have a sense they can largely coexist because this, this is not the only example of this. We, um, we later get Stannis commenting that Renly has a... What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council, council and jests with Littlefinger, indicating that this is a, a frequent common dynamic in council. Uh, Littlefinger brings up to Ned his plan after Ned uh, exposes the twincest that they should uh, cover up that truth, keep Joffrey on the throne, and if Joffrey continues to prove troublesome, uh, remove both him and Stannis and put Renly on the throne. Now, as we mentioned before, I think Littlefinger never intended for Ned to go with that plan and was just using it to trap Ned, but it does indicate a, a kind of a more openness towards Renly as, as a monarch under whom Littlefinger could work. And, of course, you do have the easy alliance Littlefinger forges with the Tyrells at Bitterbridge. Now, of course, we don't see that meeting. There's already a kind of enough common interest at work for them to work together, but I do think it's interesting that they so easily form an alliance. And that might be because, you know, Renly was positively disposed towards Littlefinger and passed that along to the Tyrells. Anything's possible. Again, I'm not saying that they were in direct cahoots, but I think if you look at the whole the way the relationship is described, it suggests that they were at least okay with each other, whereas yeah. the flip side of that is we get the strong sense that Stannis and Littlefinger were basically at each other's throats on the small council. Uh, the way Littlefinger talks about Stannis, the way Stannis brings up when he gets to the wall about Jano Slint's corruption and how he's certain that it was Littlefinger who arranged for Robert to just uh, dismiss it. So I think we're seeing one, you know, there's, there's no end of contrast between Stannis and Renly. That's something Martin is clearly fascinated by and invests a great deal in, as they're described later in the book. Uh, what is it? The, the steel gauntlet and the silk glove, or the iron yep. gauntlet and the silk glove, something like that. Yep. So this might be an early example of that in the in the terms of their relationship with Littlefinger, that Renly gets along with him and Stannis hates his guts. And as someone who hates Littlefinger's guts, that's just one more reason for me to side with Stannis. Absolutely. We, we're always finding reasons to, to side with Stannis in this podcast. <laughs> true. We're the one true podcast. Mm of rereading the books. So, you know, we have to uh, exactly. side, side with our boy when we can, and which we do often, as, as we do. Um, but yeah, the, the whole dynamic of, of Stannis, I, I mean, they, they have that discussion later on where Renly, I think it's in Eddard 6, where Renly is like, oh, if Stannis were here, he would ban all the, the brothels. He proposed that one time. And, and you know, you have this, this dynamic. You can imagine, it's hard to imagine, although it's kind of funny to imagine too, of Stannis sitting in council with people like Littlefinger and with Renly and with Varys and being like, you guys are full of shit. Like, you can imagine him just not enjoying his time there as master of ships and constantly being at odds with the people on the small council. And it's almost, you can almost imagine it in a similar vein to what we see with Ned here, where Ned's like, this is folly, what, we're, what you guys are proposing, what you guys are willing to go along with. But, you know, the real folly comes when we get to Littlefinger and man, that guy is, uh, well, he's not, a, he's not a fool, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but he is something else. Yeah, Littlefinger. He's, he's an incel who's been rehearsing this scene in his head for, <laughs> for years now. That's what this dude is. I'm, I'm deadly serious. Like, obviously, you know, the, the, the alt-right man-baby movement was not what it is now in the 90s when Martin was writing this, but I've always felt very strongly that Littlefinger is in large part Martin's portrait of a toxic nerd which is definitely mm -hmm. the kind of person he's been dealing with, you know, as being part of the fantasy and science fiction since he was a kid, going to a bunch of conventions. You know, he's seen this guy. And I very much get that impression from, from how Littlefinger handles himself in this chapter. 
when he's talking to Ned. Again, this is a man who they've never met who has never done him any harm. Yes, right. he's a Stark. Yes, he married Catelyn. But any adult would recognize that, you know, you might resent him for that, but he's never done anything to you. Oh, and yeah. Littlefinger immediately brings up Brandon <laughs> like he's the Joker talking about his scars. Like, immediately is shoving this in Ned's face. Is his dead brother that we deal with. He's not dancing around it. He's not, you know, skillfully weaving into the conversation. He's just shoving it in Ned's face. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, he, he does that reference to Stark's melting in the southern heat, which, given what happened to Rickard specifically, and, like, the armor melting off him and then his skin and flesh, that, that, that imagery is, is such... Uh, stay classy, Littlefinger. What, what a thing to tell Ned had on to be his first day. It had to be intentional. Oh, absolutely a thing. I'm sure he came up with that line, the, like, the night before, it was, like, rubbing his hands together. Yeah. Uh, it's just... You know, it, it's callous, and that may sound banal in a series full of war crimes and rapes and human sacrifices and to, to slap someone's wrist for callousness, but it's it's just an extremely obnoxious way to behave with no reason, and that's the, that's the real <laughs> condemnation of Littlefinger for me here. He's antagonizing Ned for no strategic purpose. It doesn't help him. It doesn't no. advance any of his goals. Because his goal right. is to get Ned to trust him. Like, that's, right. that's what he's going for here. But he's, he just does it because he needs to feel superior. He needs to feel like he has the upper hand. He needs to feel like, yeah, Catelyn was wrong to marry this guy and never reply to my letter. Because I'm <laughs> smarter than him. It's so childish. Yeah, it really is. Like, you can imagine him posting on, on the Reddit, incel subreddit, and all these oh, different God, things. Yeah. You can, all the different things that he's, he's saying about... The, uh, what do they call him? The Chad? He, I guess he considers, yeah. like, Ned Stark the Chad figure. Like, you can imagine him saying these things like, no doubt Lady Catelyn has mentioned me to you. Aha! Did Brandon speak of me too? And, by the way, you're going to melt here in the South just like your brother and your father. You know, and by the way, I'm going to lead you to the dungeons and slit your throat and seal your corpse up behind a wall. Ha ha ha! Hey, and if you don't follow me, I'm going to keep Catelyn to myself. And then, you know, Ned, why are you so slow and old? What's happened to you, bro? Like, you're just, you're just so slow and old. And then, oh, by the way, your wife um, is in a brothel with no context, right? That's the thing, right? There's, he just yeah. goes up to Ned and says, ah, your wife is inside. And Ned's like, what? <laughs> like, of course he draws a dagger and nearly kills Littlefinger on the spot. And then he does things like little things like insults Ned's intelligence, asking if he has snow between his ear. He advises Ned Stark to throw away the Valyrian steel dagger and forget about it. Like, what? No. I, I mean, I understand what he's doing here. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but... Yeah, it's clear that he's he's getting trying to get under Ned's skin with that line. And then he again brings up the memory of Brandon Stark again by saying, your brother has been moldering in his frozen grave for some 14 years now. Like you said before, that's extremely callous. Like, that's a horrible way of putting it. And then, you know, he still does again. He does this thing where he's talking about he's doing it all for Catelyn and their shared past. He uses a needless obscenity about Vars, about cupping Vars. He has Vars' balls in the cup of his hand to the very prudish Ned Stark, the known prudish Ned Stark. And then he jokes that if Ned wants to have sex with Catelyn in the brothel, he'll have to charge him for it. Like these are the way that Littlefinger interacts with Ned is so blatantly and like so blatantly wrong and just like you said it says no strategic reason behind it it's just him being like ah well this guy this chad here has been shitting on me his whole life he doesn't know it of course because he hasn't done that intentionally and here's me like getting at him like kind of like poking him poking him poking him poking him until at the very end where he actually does you know again draw the dagger and put it to ned's neck and uh, that's that's how the 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 Ned and Littlefinger interactions conclude in Game of Thrones, but yeah, it's it's very much your description of him as an incel is spot on, uh, great you know 
culturally relevant now that that's a, a, a big thing in our, our, our cultural zeitgeist these days. And, you know, unfortunately, and, you know, we're going to see that time and time again, where Littlefinger is just going to be constantly prodding and poking Ned and making him angry and upset and doing these things for no, I mean, some of them have reasons, but a lot of times they just don't, they're just needless insults intended to make Littlefinger feel good about himself by making Ned feel bad about himself. Exactly. And yeah, the, the sexual comments with Littlefinger, they're, they're always, they're never clever or funny or like, or they're never witty. They're just crude and obvious and just kind of gross and immature. Yeah. Like they never, they rarely make people laugh. You'll notice like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not Littlefinger. And this is some, and we talked about this before where Martin said like, you know, Littlefinger is everyone's friend. And I get what he's going for with that, but I kind of don't see it in practice a lot of the time because of comments like that, where it's like, Tywin doesn't like talk like that. Right. Ace Terrell doesn't really like talk like that. Like, that's not, that's just not how you talk in, in, in small council or to the hand of the king. Um, and it's, you know, you could say Littlefinger's flouting decorum, but he's not doing it with a purpose, as we're yeah. saying, like with a deeper ideology. He's just doing it because he can. He's, he's like the guy who, who like calls you horrible names. And then when you, you, you call him out on, he says, well, free speech. <laughs> like that's like that's that's Littlefinger, and it's, yes. it's it's so there's this again it's this superficiality and the shallowness to everything he's doing that really undercuts any uh, any pretense to having a cause, which is you know what separates Littlefinger and Varys for me, as I've said before. Anywho, yeah. moving on to the uh, the final counselor in the room, the the one we are meeting for the first time, and that is Pycelle, the not so grand maester. Uh, <laughs> Oddly enough, one of the most prominent supporting characters in the story, really. He's, yeah. he's kind of just always there in the background. He, he rarely takes the, st- the central center stage, except for when he ends up running the government at the end of A Feast for Crows, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, but he's, he's, he's constantly there, you know, to... He, he represents kind of this not benign, but very kind of passive venal authority. Like, he's not he's not an active schemer like the rest of these guys. He's clear, he's Tywin's mole, but, like, he, his signature move is not doing anything, as with John. Yeah. Like, that's Pycelle's signature move, is sitting there and being just completely passive. Mm-hmm. His role in terms of dialogue is he's the straight man on the small council, the, the kind of the stiff, stiff-backed guy who doesn't really understand what's going on. I do love his line that you mentioned in the summary where he asked Littlefinger if the treasury will bear the expense. And they all just say, no, idiot. We all know that the treasury is <laughs> empty. Why? Like, he's clearly just been pretending this whole time that things are running smoothly. Uh, and that's, that's that's a good role for someone in, someone in the room has to play that job, you know, in terms of making the conversations go. Someone has to be kind of clueless, or at least appear to be clueless. Yes, uh, and, and and say the obviously dumb thing to keep the conversation going, and that's that's kind of Pycelle. He is, he's the the font of official wisdom and perspective, described with all these links on his chains and this marvelous white snowy beard that he's so proud of, but it's undercut by how he actually conducts himself uh, and and tends to talk. And um, right and right after we have Renly as young Robert, we have Littlefinger's bitter invocations of the past, and Pycelle is kind of another perspective on the aging process, which is I think a big theme of this chapter is, is getting old. I agree with that, and it's interesting. This, this the second thing he he tells Ned after introducing himself is something like, "If this goes on much longer, I'm going to fall asleep." And like the the meeting just started like two minutes ago, man. Like the, yeah, they haven't exactly. been going on for an hour. It's it's been going on for two minutes. The the major question I have is how much of it is Pycelle 
playing a role and looking like a dotard old idiot when in fact holding some degree of intelligence or even better whether he thinks that he's playing the role but he actually is an old idiot dotard who doesn't actually have a whole lot of intelligence i think that i I tend to favor the second interpretation of who pacell is but i guess you can potentially see him as being maybe a little more smart than he's given credit for here because when we see him in a feast for crows he becomes cersei's only really good advisor on the small council, letting Cersei know that it's not a good idea for to let Lord Arrain Waters crew the royal fleet with criminals, and that Tyrion isn't in league with the Tyrells, and that the Ironborn have not actually allied with Stannis. So the question, I guess, is going to be whether Pacell is actually an idiot here is just playing one on TV. And I think that's something that we'll We'll, we'll, we'll explore it in some greater depth as we progress through a Game of Thrones. Yeah, there is a deleted scene from the show I actually quite like between Pycelle and Tywin where it's implied that it's completely a fake. Yeah. That Pycelle is quite intelligent but has been feigning stupidity to keep from like becoming a target of any other schemer. Which is interesting. I, for me, it's it's definitely true in the Feast for Crows. He starts he gives Cersei good advice. For me, it's that always came off as like the bar has been so lowered by everyone else. <laughs> Cersei puts on the council that P- the Pycelle ends up the voice of reason almost by default because yeah. everyone else is Orion <laughs> yeah, Waters yeah. or Harris Swift or uh, what's his name Merryweather, Tyena's yeah. husband, Orton Merryweather or Kyburn. Exactly, Kyburn. Exactly. Where I come down on Pycelle is he. So he thinks that Cersei killed John Aaron. I'm pretty sure if I recall correctly from yes, class, he starts confessing to Tyrion. He thinks that Cersei killed John Aaron, he just stood by and let it happen. Yeah. Because John Aaron knew about the twin cyst. That being the case, and the fact that Pycelle thinks of himself as working on behalf of the Lannisters, it's incredibly stupid for him to give Ned that book. Yeah. To tell Ned about what John Aaron was reading. That's so if if I have to come down on Pycelle as secretly smart guy or actually dumb guy that's what leads me towards actually dumb guy is if yeah. that's, that's such an antithetical move to the interests of House Lannister that that he doesn't realize why this would be a problem is 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 astonishing to me. But I do I do it does it does tickle my fancy that he ends up briefly in charge of the kingdom. I do yes. love that. That's such a good commentary on what a wreck Cersei is and the, the utter collapse of the Lannister regime that this guy is the one who ends up briefly in charge. He, he of course immediately hands things over to Kevin Lannister. But it is it is funny that this this guy of all the small counselors is the one who ends up briefly running the city. Like Littlefinger doesn't end up running the government at any point. Nope. Varys doesn't run the government at any point. I don't think he ever directly will. But Pycelle does. So that's that 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 amuses me. It does. It is amusing. But the funny thing about Pycelle is that in terms of his academic credentials, it's extremely strong. They talk about how he has is it two chains of of maesters chains around his neck. So he has done the legwork as an academic to to get, you know, smart in terms of what the Citadel believes. And, um, but, you know, he just might not be that great in terms of the actual governance of, of King's Landing and as an actual counselor and advisor to the king. Um, just as kind of a, a little side note, a little trivia, of some of the, the links there, we don't know actually a lot of what the links mean that Pacell is wearing. We actually only know three of the links and they are Black Iron is typically symbolizing ravenry and the ability to control and send ravens. Pale silver is associated with medicine and medicinal applications in in the books. And then you have bronze, which is astronomy and astrology. Uh, The other ones, platinum, red gold, bright copper, dull lead, steel, tin, and brass, they're not essentially known at this point what they mean. Um, What's interesting is that he doesn't have a Valyrian steel um, link, which is something that that Marwyn has in A Feast for Crows, and that typically means 
the occult or magic, and uh, he doesn't have that one. Um, but what's what's curious and interesting about Pycelle is that two of those three metals come into play in the story in that he controls the Ravenry from King's Landing. He, he controls the flow of information to and from the city. And then that pale silver link that is the medicinal one gives Ned and Tyrion vantage points to question Pycelle over John Aaron's death. So again, book smart, has a lot of academic credentials behind himself, but is not necessarily the best counselor to the king. Um, but yeah, that's uh, some one of the things. I one of the very minor things I'm curious to see if the Winds of Winter is going to talk about is whether we'll get some definition on what the other metals mean in the books, um, and what we can find out what platinum or red gold or bright copper or some of those other metals and, and links mean for the for the story and whether there's future um, connotations that'll that'll come from that. Yeah, I could certainly see it coming up in Sam's chapters in Old Town. He's studying at the Citadel now. I could easily see him, you know, going through the list for us as he thinks yeah. about what he wants to try for, what his ambitions might be. So I wouldn't be surprised if that information comes comes there. So uh, Ned, of course, takes this all in. He's met all these people. He's, you know, kind of trying to judge them as counselors. And he thinks back to Robert's line about being surrounded by flatterers and fools. And there's an interesting moment where Ned thinks to himself that he already knows which is which. He doesn't say it out loud, but I think that's an interesting little moment. If I had to guess, I would say he's thinking of Varus and Renly as the flatterers and Pycelle and Littlefinger as the fools. What do you think? I agree with that, as per the norm. Uh, and In fact, Ned confirms that he thinks Littlefinger is a fool later on when he says, if you truly believe I could forget that, that being the Valyrian steel dagger that attempted to end Bran's life, you are as big a fool now as when you took up sword against my brother. But the question I have is, is Ned wrong here? Varys, yeah, sure, he's a flatterer throughout and but he's secretly holding on to his own knowledge and his own conspiracy at work. But Littlefinger, not so much a fool. As we're going to find out throughout A Game of Thrones, Littlefinger isn't the fool. He has his own conspiracy at work. He is kind of playing one on TV. Um, he does do some foolish things with Ned in this chapter, as we talked about. Um, but he, he's not a fool, necessarily. But Renly, Renly is more fool than flatter, as we're going to find out. Renly has his own conspiracy at work, but he's not necessarily the brightest bulb in the shed. In the small council, he's basically just a yes man to Robert and doesn't really have a lot going on for himself. And is, is described by other characters as basically Mace Tyrell's pawn in advancing the interests of House Tyrell in A Clash of Kings and then A Storm of Swords. But, you know, Ned is right about Pycelle. As we talked about, he's more in the fool category than the flatter category. But overall, that gives Ned only a 50% grade here. Which, if you're in in, Ameri- in American schools, is an F. <laughs> but here's the bigger question that I have for you, Emmett. Do you think that ultimately is Ned the fool, though, in this chapter? Not in this chapter, but as, as Hand of the King in A Game of Thrones. I wouldn't describe Ned as a fool. I think he gets brought down by a lot of unfortunate intersecting circumstances. And I think even the bad decisions he makes, you know, have a lot of humanity and weight behind them. Uh... The decision I really quibble with, and we'll get into a little bit later, is trusting Littlefinger after this chapter. Yes. But th- there is the sense, like when Ned is looking around that table thinking he doesn't belong here, that brings the old poker adage of, like, if you look around the table and can't figure out who the sucker is, it's you. <laughs> uh, so, so, there is that sense with Ned. Not that he's dumber than these people, but that uh, they are invested in their long con and that he doesn't have something similar that he's quite invested in. He's invested in the notion of Robert being a good king, but he's not really fully invested or understanding of his role in that and how he can use his job to influence that. Mm-hmm. So I think he I think he is outmatched by them in that way, and that we will see that evolve over the course of the book. They also just have more information than he does. 
I think that's worth keeping in mind. Like, they all know about the Twin Cyst. Mm-hmm. Varus, Littlefinger, and Pycelle explicitly know about it. I think, as we'll make the case as we go on with this podcast, I'm quite sure Renly knew about it, too. Yes. Uh, so, and they're just more used to King's Landing, so he is at a disadvantage to them. I, I think he could have handled that disadvantage better, but I, I don't think that makes him quite a fool. But he definitely, again, like I was saying earlier, we are supposed to be getting the sense of him in this chapter as him being kind of constantly wrong-footed and unsure of exactly what's going on. And, of course, there is that great quote from his final chapter. Uh, Yet in the end, he blamed himself. Fool, he cried to the darkness, thrice-damned blind fool. (laughs) So, Ned, Ned in the end, ultimately thinks of himself as a fool. So, one can take that or leave that. True that. But, yeah, that's an interesting thing to consider as we're going through the chapters. But there are two absent counselors from this meeting. Barristan, who we already talked about, is escorting Robert through the streets of King's Landing to the Red Keep. But there's another one that's absent, too, one that we may have mentioned once or twice previously in this podcast, and that is the Lord Future King Stannis, and he has retreated to Dragonstone after Robert named Ned as as Hand of the King. And yeah, that's an interesting absence, to be sure, and something that Martin intentionally wants to point out to us that is odd, right? That, That the Master of Ships is gone from King's Landing. Yeah, Stannis very much has a structuring absence throughout Game of Thrones. It keeps being brought up. We get a strong sense of his personality, his character, his backstory. We spend a lot of time on him for someone who doesn't show up in this first book. And I think that's to, uh, Martin giving you a sense of it really matters that uh, Stannis isn't here and that things might have gone differently and also that you get the sense that he's coming for all these people. Yes. Like, Stan, like Stannis left, but he, you know, it's the the, uh, the, the I shall return moment, you know, he's that he's, mm-hmm. he's going to come back to wreak vengeance on these guys and that... You know, for better or worse, like, Stannis is the solution to a room full of flatterers and fools. Like, you, that kind of Ned... Again, by the end of A Game of Thrones, you have Ned almost kind of pining for Stannis and, and desperately wanting him to show up and sort mm-hmm. these people out. So, there is a sense that, like, yeah, this this empty chair represents the overall kind of failure of this government. That the the one guy who was actually kind of trying to govern the place and, and, and root out the corrupt a- aspects of it isn't here. But of course, you know, on the flip side of Stannis' worship is the, the the question of why he's not here, and that's something yeah. that's something we'll get into more as we go. We have a lot to cover here still, of course, but uh, it's it's an open question and a frequent debate in the fandom of whether Stannis was right to do this to to leave the dragons Dragonstone and not make a peep until the Clash of Kings. Yeah, that's definitely something we'll be considering as we go through a Game of Thrones for sure. Where Stannis is, why he left, and was he right to leave? So we'll talk about that come down the road. There's plenty of Ned chapters. We'll get into that. But those are our counselors then for the small council. But there is some affairs of the state that Ned and the counselors are going to deal with here. Yeah, we, of course, as you said in your summary, they immediately begin with the hands turning. Uh, this is the Robert's first salvo. This is Ned's first governing task, and it's it's wonderfully representative therein. Uh, it, it, it sets up a lot of problems immediately. lets you know that things are not going great with Robert's regime. You have the expense, as we'll get into in a second, uh, how, what a huge kind of expenditure this is for the crown. As Janos Slint will report in later Ned chapter, there's a breakdown of law and order that goes hand in hand with this tourney. You got you know murders and fights and fires and all this stuff that's extremely dangerous in a pre-modern city that doesn't have like mm-hmm. a police force or firefighters or you know any of the things we can kind of take for granted in, in modern cities don't exist in King's Landing you have Janos Slint's assholes and that's it yes uh, and as, as emphasized over and over in the series the gold cloaks are not to really be trusted no you have the 
In the turn, you have this focus on masculine athletic splendor, Uberalis. Uh, and again, there's a very much a nostalgic element to that for Robert. He's trying to recapture his glory days. That's emphasized by his ludicrous desire to participate personally, <laughs> which is Ned and Barristan gently point out later is ridiculous because no one's going to touch him because he's the king. <laughs> and that Robert doesn't seem to realize this is a huge sign that he's not taking his job seriously or doesn't understand really what it, what it means that he's wearing the crown. Uh, there is, of course, uh, Robert's insistence on naming this tourney in Ned's honor and forcing him to run it, even though Ned doesn't want to do it, which I, you know, is emphasizes again Robert as an absentee king. But we were talking about Stannis and kind of Ned as a stand-in for Stannis in some ways in this chapter, or at least kind of fulfilling the role that Stannis would be in council as kind of like the the realist grouch in the room. <laughs> uh, What's interesting to consider is how completely opposite Robert's approach to them is. Like with Stannis, it's like Robert would only give him the, the the shitty, dangerous jobs, would never give him any real authority, never gives him any real credits. You know, was always kind of ostracizing him and making him do the dirty work. With Ned, it's it's like giving him a glory he doesn't want, giving yeah. him a, a, a attorney named in his honor. No, that's great. Uh, it's the exact opposite of how Robert would treat Stannis, but in both cases, it makes the other person unhappy. Stannis oh, yeah. feels neglected, and Ned feels burdened. So neither Robert is doing neither of his his right hand men right here, which I, th- I think is an an, an interesting note. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, to all of this, of course, tourneys are an important part of feudal politics. This is something that comes up again and again in the series. Uh, maybe most of all, when we get to Renly in a Clash of Kings and his kind of his tourney at Bitterbridge. It's, you know, it's how you show off that you're a generous and open-handed and powerful king. It's how you show that the, the martial powers and the great knights and warriors of the country are at your command and will literally do their art before you as their as their audience. Uh, it's, it's how you get, like, kind of the small folks swept up in the romance of your, of your regime and get them to associate you with bread and circuses and wine and, and, and women. And, you know, you it's, it's, it's part of the game. It's it's so it's it's not the worst idea. Robert's motives and process, I would say, are troubling. Yeah, but it's not, it's not the worst idea until you get to the fact that they have no money. <laughs> yes, that's, that's where it starts to fall apart. Yes, the crown is dangerously in debt, and we will we will talk about the reasons for that debt. There's very much a crowning feature of this chapter that the crown is going to have to take out loans in order to finance this tournament. And while it does, like Emmett put out, have good impacts on the realm, allows the warriors to to train and to test themselves, brings everyone together and, you know, helps bind them to the king and his policies, it's maybe not the best idea to have a massive tournament when the crown is six million golden dragons in debt. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> maybe I, not. May, maybe that's not the best idea to do some deficit spending at this time. Maybe we should figure out a way to get our crowns finance, get the crowns finances back in good shape. Maybe just, just maybe, just, just putting it out there. Look at Jeff the Republican going after deficit spending. We're getting hashtag <laughs> political, folks. Yeah, in all, in all seriousness, for me personally, as the as the filthy socialist in the room, <laughs> uh, big government spending in itself isn't necessarily the problem. I mean, the road Ned took to get here exists because Jaharis one said so. Yes, if, you know, there's 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 definitely a place for it, especially in you know. Uh, 
modernizing and, and bringing your, your regime up to snuff. I mean, there's a reason Essos looks at Westeros like a backwater, and that's because they're, you know, they're, they're, you know it's, it's relatively cheap and drab. And as, as, as wild as Eris's dreams and public projects were in his head, some of them sounded interesting and potentially like a good idea. Uh, the, for me, the, the problems with this are threefold. One is that we don't see any evidence of it being spent on the, those kind of projects. There's no yep. King Robert Road. There's no like septons and seps and schools and and uh, inns that he's built all across the land, you know, with his face on them. There's a, a friend, uh, Stephen Atwell at Race for the Iron Throne, has written a lot about canals and how canals could really improve the the economy and transportation in Westeros. And there's no son of Robert doing that. So it's there's no there's no Keynesianism here. There's no priming of the pump. Yeah. There's there's no stimulative effect to the spending it would seem there's it, it doesn't seem to have done any good and you can see that with the hands turning when it was it Angai who wins the archery contest and instead of like buying like you know some other I think one of the other brotherhoods guys said guys you should have bought some land and <laughs> raised turnips and contributed to the economy but instead he pissed it all away on women and wine and swan like so that that emphasizes that the hands turning all that money is not doing any good it's not yeah. doing any lasting good for the economy so that's one of the problems. Uh, the other problem, uh, as we'll get into more in A Clash of Kings with Tyrion, is that no one can figure out Littlefinger's accounting methods, which is deliberate <laughs> on his part to cover his tracks, but that means there's there's no way of keeping track about how the money is being, being spent, and, yeah. and you know, that's that's no good regardless of, of what, what you're spending the money on. Uh, one, one has to keep track of, of how it's being spent. And of course, the other big problem is that, as we see with the Reborn Faith Militant and the Feast for Crows... The Crown's creditors can potentially use uh, this debt as a great deal of leverage over policy, and that is no good. No, it's not any good at all. And, you know, to get hashtag political one more time, I do think that there is a sense that there are projects that are worthy of spending money on at the government level. And the the main problem that Ned and, and me, because, again, I'm a Ned Stark stand, uh, see is, <laughs> is that they're spending money they don't have. They're, they're taking loans from, from different organizations and people. And some of these people are not people that Ned wants to take loans from, you know, Littlefinger brings it up specifically that they're going to ask Lord Tywin Lannister for loans. And Ned has a very personal reason why he wouldn't want to borrow money from Lord Tywin Lannister, who was the one who ordered the deaths or potentially that is debated at points, but under whose command the deaths of the children occurred and under whose command the sack of King's Landing occurred. That's something that Ned is probably featuring in his thoughts here as to why he's so averse to taking out a loan, not just because it's a needless expense, but it's a needless expense financed by a war criminal. That seems like something that maybe Ned would look askance at. That's a very good point. And yeah, it's uh, you know, I think if if it was if there was a judicious plan for spending and for like you know it's going to produce a lot of revenue and we're going to be able to tax that revenue and that'll more than make up for the shortfall and we've only been borrowing from the Iron Bank and they're very reasonable like there are ways that you know that that Robert's regime could be doing this that would make sense and that would there would be a clear financial plan but yeah that's not the situation at all so you know given that. Even if you're a reader and you have no interest in, you know, government finance and are getting hashtag political with it, <laughs> even if that's the case, what this stands out to you as is a sign that Robert is actually bad at this, that he's mm-hmm. not doing his job, that he's an absentee king and that things are not going well on his watch. That's kind of the impression you're supposed to be taking away from this and 
that's something that Martin is going to keep delving into as we go on uh, in this first book. It's also there to set up the small council as a bunch of, like, sleeping on the job, cheerfully corrupt glad-handers who have just to let this occur and aren't taking it seriously. Like, Ned is yep. aghast, and, and they're just like, what? What are you getting angry about, Ned? <laughs> it's just business. This is what we do here. Because, of course, they're all working on their own separate comms. They're not here to work for the benefit of the realm. They're not here to govern. They're here to, to climb the ladder. So... For all of them, that debt is a useful political tool. It, it, it makes the government, like, you know, the fact that the government is is short on cash helps out Renly because he's with the Tyrells and they're very rich so they can kind of take over when, when they step in. Uh, it suits the Lannisters because, like you say, Tywin holds a huge portion of that debt. It suits Varys because anything that makes the crown structurally weak under his enemies will help him when, com- when it comes time for his perfect prince to take over. Mm-hmm. None of them care about the actual logistical impact on the realm except for Ned Stark so he kind of adds to his isolation and in terms of his arc of course like I was touching on earlier you know this gives him the sense that the regime he fought and sacrificed for is falling apart at the seams that it's not worthy of the sacrifices made he even uh, compares what they're doing here uh, disfavorably to how Eris ran the realm the line is uh, uh, Eris Targaryen left a treasury flowing with gold how could you let this happen like, this is the mad king. This is the guy who murdered yeah. Ned's father and brother, the man he rebelled against. And Ned is using him as a positive reference point compared to what's going on under his best friend that he helped take the throne. Like, that's a that's a gut-wrenching moment for Ned Stark. And this, of course, is laying the seeds for later conversations on exactly this topic. Ned and Robert talk multiple times about whether Robert is better or worse than the mad king. And this is a moment where you see the argument going that, yeah, Eris might have been crazy, but at least he didn't spend all the money. Yeah, uh, and uh, so that's 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 just a, a trepidatious moment for Ned, and that's what a lot of this chapter and his story in A Game of Thrones is about: is the scales falling from his eyes regarding Robert, how Robert is his king, and what it is they fought for. Yes, very much so that he's looking at Robert and seeing that what Robert is doing is not good for the realm and is beggaring the realm. I think is the way that it's it's phrased in this chapter, and that maybe for all of Eris's terrible, awful, evil faults that Eris at least left the treasury flowing with gold, that it was overflowing with gold. Not so much under Robert's realm. And I do not want to get ahead of myself because we do have a great, I'm going to say great, you'll, you'll have to judge it for yourself, but we have, a, we have a, a section on the debts to the crown that the crown owes at the end of this, this podcast here. So we will be talking about that at significant length and what is the cause and who is actually responsible for it. And speaking of that person, we... <laughs> Speaking of the first, speak spoiling what we're going to be talking about, we do get a bunch of that closes out this chapter. We get Littlefinger and his mustache, mustache twirling conspiracies and his meeting, and then them all meeting up with Catelyn and Sir Roderick at the brothel. Yeah, we over kind of went over this in detail a little bit in terms of Littlefinger's attitude and the the various things he says to Ned. Um, but yeah, like we said, he withholds his intentions here for no real reason, just to kind of taunt Ned and lead him on this this winding path through the Red Keep. Uh, he's, yeah, li- literally standing, casually eating an apple at one point, which, as you said, only assholes do. That's like an established trope that, you know, if you want to have your villain seem like a, a jerk, have him just casually eating an apple while doing something villainous. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's just l- little finger to a T here. And yeah, the the final insult, as Ned thinks of it as, when Littlefinger gestures to the brothel and says Catelyn's inside. Yeah, remember, Littlefinger's interactions with House Stark are limited to Brandon, the wild wolf, who was extremely, you know, violent and reckless. So 
he doesn't know that Ned's a relatively restrained one, or he has no real reason to think that. So he 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 must know what he's getting into when he <laughs> says that kind of thing to Ned here, and that does make me kind of downgrade him as a conspirator because it does almost get him killed. Ned does have the knife to his throat. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. Like I, when he says to Ned when they reach the brothel, he says, "Your wife is inside." You kind of again to go back to that analogy. It's almost like that Reddit post about about the the girl who spurned you being this prostitute, this whore who just left left you and has been sleeping with all these different guys, and you know not not with me, the real good guy that's actually been there all along for her, and that's very much who what Littlefinger is embodying here, that type of personality yes. that we've all seen on the internet, and frankly, a lot of us have encountered in real life too. But yeah, that. <laughs> It's just so, it's dumb, and it's dumb to the effect of being like almost like a sixteen or seventeen year old teenager dumb, and that's something that we should always keep in in mind about a lot of these characters in A Song of Ice and Fire that a lot of them have not progressed past, have not progressed in their maturity past the point where they feel like something that where a traumatic moment for them occurred. For you know Ned, Ned has not necessarily gotten past the death of Lyanna Stark. For Robert, he hasn't gotten past the death of Lyanna as well. And for a character like Littlefinger, he hasn't gotten past the point where Catelyn was, quote-unquote, taken from him when he deserved her after all that he had been through with her, which is bullshit, of course, but of course that's the way that Littlefinger thinks about himself. But then we get Catelyn, and Catelyn is there at the end of this chapter, and it's kind of a touching moment, all things considered. Yeah, her and Ned have this, this, this nice hug, and they're happy to see each other, and of course this is the last time they see each other. As it, as it will turn out. Of course, you don't know that going first time in. It's just a mom and dad strategy session. They're going they're going over the knife, what happened with Bran, and what they're going to do about it next, how they're going to handle the Lannisters. Ned has this very kind of uh, sad, touching moment where he's thinking about the, the dire wolf, the dire wolves as a whole, and uh, the, the, the role they, they play in House Stark. Um, Bran's wolf had saved the boy's life, he thought dully. What was it that John had said when they found the pups in the snow? The children were meant to have these pups, my lord, and he had killed Sansa's. And for what? Was it guilt he was feeling, or fear? If the gods had sent these wolves, what folly had he done? Which is is a yeah, it's a nice, like, really kind of chilling little moment. He's he kind of connects the conspiracies going on to his family, his very identity, and suggests that like already the King's Landing conspiracies have caused him to give up part of his soul and part of his family's soul and cut out part of House Stark and yeah. who they are and. Like, he's, he's, he's already left his, his daughters vulnerable, and it's true. I mean, it's impossible to know how it would have played out if the direwolves had been in King's Landing with Sansa and Arya. But, I mean, like, mo- moments of, like, you know, Sansa being attacked or beaten certainly could have gone differently if Lady was still alive. Yeah. So, I think, you know, Ned's, Ned's right to worry here, and it's definitely a very kind of portentous moment and a very kind of portentous chapter. It is that, and then we get into preparing the North for the war that Ned fears is going to come his way, and we get the wolves up in the North uh, actually uh, starting to make their preparations for that war, and Ned gives a couple of interesting orders about what he wants the North to do in preparation for that potential, and as we find out, inevitable war that's coming for Westeros. Yeah, and as we'll get into a little later in the foreshadowing and groundwork talk, we can see this playing out as late as a dance with dragons. Uh, the, the the North kind of following Ned's last orders. And then, of course, this chapter ends on Ned's uncertainty about Roberts. You know, him saying that he, he 
prays that Robert is not the man he fears that he has become. And that really ties the whole chapter together. That's what links this scene in the brothel back to the small council scene where Ned learned about the massive debt and that Robert is kind of an absentee king. That links this back because, you know, that's that's what puts the fear in him. That's what makes him think, oh, if I come to him with what I'm learning, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe he's not the man that I thought he was. So that's, that's how this chapter ends. It's this very kind of... This kind of ominous note where Ned has learned a great deal about how the government works, but it's it's shaken his faith in the man he thought he could, he could help fix it. So I like that because it sets the stakes very personally. It's not just will Ned figure out what's going on or will Ned reform the government. Is is can Ned trust his friends still? Can Ned trust Robert to be the man he hoped he would be? And that's you know that's what really. As I've said before, what lingers for me about Ned chapters isn't so much the plot stuff, but the more character internal stuff. And that, yeah, that's a great example of it. I love that the chapter ends on that note. Yeah, you're right about that. It's a, uh, it's definitely a moment in Ned's story where he's finding out who who his friend actually is, and when he ends the chapter with and pray that Robert is the man I think he is, not the man I fear he has become. Unfortunately for Ned, Robert is the man that he fears that he's become, ultimately. He is the guy who's going to send hired knives after Danny and Viserys. He is the guy who's going to let go the reins of, of rule and just and let Westeros fall into ruin. Because of his, his negligence, if not his negligence, then his apathy towards rule, and that's going to be a recurring, extremely sad part of Ned's arc that he finds out that his friend is not the man he once knew on the trident that his friend has become someone that he doesn't know yeah all, all he can say is not near so bad as Eris yeah which is a very bittersweet moment where he's trying to comfort his friend in his last moments but it's also like and that's but that's all you got that's all you can say about Robert's like well he wasn't as bad as the literal insane sadist who came before him <laughs> right points uh and that is just that's just very depressing but yeah so that's that's just very depressing that's that's Ned Ford in a nutshell it is that. um Moving on to what we uh, like and didn't like about the chapter, obviously, as always, we've covered this in bits and pieces as we go, but uh, one, some, something I really do like about the chapter in that early small council scene is that Ned is able to keep up with Littlefinger in terms of verbally sparring. Yeah. Uh, you know, Littlefinger says, you know, I have no doubt Lady Catelyn has mentioned me to you, and Ned says, she has, I understand you knew my brother Brandon as well. <laughs> and then Littlefinger said, did Brandon speak of me too? And Ned says, often and with some heat. And like, you know, it's not just Ned going, huh, what? Like, he's, he's yeah. keeping up. There's, they're on the same level in terms of sparring with each other, which I like because it emphasizes again that the problem with Ned is not that he's stupid. Right. You know, it's that he, he misunderstands his job and his priorities come into conflict and a lot of things as we'll get into, but it's not that he's dumb. No. And that the only reason he looks bumbling later on in the chapter is because Littlefinger specifically arranges that and withholds information for no good reason and is trying to make Ned look stupid. And part of me wonders whether that's in part because Ned is able to keep up with Littlefinger in this scene, in the earlier scene, the small council scene, Littlefinger feels threatened by it. I think you get a similar dynamic with Littlefinger and Tyrion where uh, Littlefinger feels kind of threatened by Tyrion and then is furious about being fooled about in the one, two, three situation in A Clash yes. of Kings, and then kind of takes that out on Tyrion later. So Littlefinger, uh, you know, that's that's something that works for me about Littlefinger's character is that his he he's so easily pricked and irked, and he kind of needs to stab back. Yeah, and that definitely goes against some fans of the story who think that Littlefinger is just this master conspirer and the schemer who has is flawless in his execution of his schemes. So far in the story. 
to a lesser or greater extent, he has been successful in his schemes. But at the same time, there is a person underneath of the conspirer, and that person is 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 still this kid who gets hurt and gets gets his feelings hurt when his past is brought up, and he's still just a little boy, uh, ultimately who's attempting to joke and jest his way through through the situations in his life, but still still deeply deeply hurt by by things that occurred, and that's uh, ultimately I think it'll be to his downfall, as we'll probably discuss in later Sansa chapters. But well, it's uh, definitely something to 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 be aware of. And I do love that dynamic that Ned and Tyrion both can match Littlefinger in the verbal sparring and get into, get under Littlefinger's skin. It's great. It's terrific. Yeah. He doesn't like, he, he, he prefers it with Sansa because she doesn't like talk back to him and he can kind of try to mold her and shape her conversationally and and make her his, his willing slave. So yeah, Littlefinger doesn't like, people on this working with him on the same level he needs to they either needs to be working for them and fooling them or they need to be working for him he, he yes. doesn't he, he doesn't cooperate nicely he doesn't play nice with others that's peter baelish Absolutely. speaking of him the thing i dislike about this chapter and again we've alluded to this is that it really bothers me how much ned trusts littlefinger after this like ned never likes littlefinger he never goes all in on him except for at the end but he gives him way too much credence and authority just based on how this chapter goes. It's it's obvious, I think, even to a first-time reader how this relationship is going to end. Not the specific scenario, of course, but it's very it's very clear that Littlefinger mm-hmm. despises Ned. He visibly loathes the man. It comes through in everything he says and does. And I get that yep. Ned is ultimately trusting Catelyn, that Catelyn vouches for Littlefinger, Ned trusts Catelyn, but Ned is still an adult... <laughs> He has five senses of his own. Are they not all telling him that Littlefinger wants Catelyn to be a widow? Yes. Like, is he is he really incapable of realizing that Catelyn is looking at Littlefinger through rose-colored glasses when she talks about him as, I knew him as a kid, we were as close as, as he was as close to me as a brother. Like, for me, and that should be saying, okay, that's great, that's all valid, but he just taunted me for no goddamn reason all the <laughs> way here and almost made me kill him. I don't think he's the man you remember, I think he might be putting on a show. Like, I, I, I wish there was a... I understand that for the plot, this has to happen. Little Ned has to put himself, his neck in the noose for Littlefinger. I wish there was a little more pushback or that Littlefinger was a little more subtle about it because putting all the eggs in this particular basket is an obviously terrible decision. Mm-hmm. Especially right after a council meeting where Ned learned that the crown is hugely in debt. And this is the master of coin, and he doesn't seem stupid. Yeah. So... You know, it makes again as we were talking about earlier that I I don't I don't like it when Ned's portrayed as dumb, but there are moments in the series that I think Martin falls short and just portrays him that way, and this is one of those moments that it's 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 just stupid to trust Littlefinger given how how little he hides his hatred from Ned. You know that's something that's that's a great point in that there is a common fan perception of Ned Stark as being dumb that Ned Stark died in King's Landing because he was dumb and. Em and I both don't think that's the case, and we'll talk a little bit more about why Ned Stark ultimately fails as we're progressing through A Game of Thrones. But to this very small credit of that theory that Ned died in King's Landing because he's dumb, the Ned-Littlefinger relationship is very much crafted in a way that Ned is not firing on all synapses. Now, there is, like we talked about, they do have a bit of parring in terms of their verbal sparring they they seem to match words well but ned can't seemingly get to the point where like emmett said where he should have been like you know my lady this is not this this guy is not the same guy that you grew up with he's he's very different he's he's has 
there's something about him that just doesn't sit well with me. And I don't think I can trust this guy. And, and, you know, there's that motif throughout where Ned doesn't trust Littlefinger, but he still goes along with him. And that's really kind of brought up in this chapter, too, where Littlefinger says, ah, Lord Stark, you're going the wrong way. Follow me. And Ned Stark weirdly, and I think I put this in the summary, weirdly just decides to follow Littlefinger. And, and then he's like, oh, we're not going back to the to the Tower of the Hand. He's like, did I think we were? Did you think that we were? I'm going to go slit your throat and hide your body in the dungeon. Right. And at that point, like, why doesn't Ned just stop where he is, say, fuck you, I'm getting my guards, yeah. and walk away? Like, why is he even continuing to follow this man? Like, is it just curiosity? Like, Littlefinger brings up Catelyn? Like, I feel like Ned would just say no at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, again, I understand why this has to happen for, for plot mechanics, but it does, it does feel like one of those rare situations where Martin is blatantly working backwards from what he needs to happen story-wise and is yeah. not informing it character-wise. And generally, he, 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 he goes character first, and I think that's part of what makes him a really good writer. This is a situation, I think, in which the seams are a little too visible, and he, he just needs Ned to, to trust Littlefinger, just because he needs Ned to trust Littlefinger. I think he could have done a little bit better around the margins in terms of giving Ned some more pushback and having Littlefinger be a little less blatantly obvious about it. That might have helped a little bit. But anyway, yeah. sir, those are my likes and dislikes for the chapter. What are yours? Well, um, I'll start with my dislike because it's very similar to yours, if we're staying in the same same vein. Um, you know, I find Littlefinger's obvious villainy a bit much bit too obvious on reread all the times he's pissing off ned it just basically screams like i'm the bad guy and i get that part of what george is going for here at least i think is that he's trying to obscure Littlefinger's villainy by making it seem quote unquote too obvious but i really prefer the uh, the subtlety of Varys, and that's something we talked about in the catlin 3 chapter that Varys is a better character in our minds because he his motivations and what he what is inspiring his actions is so shrouded in mystery and intrigue that we're not really sure what Varys is after. We're pretty fucking sure what Littlefinger's after, and by the end of Catelyn three, by the end of Eddard four. Um, so I guess George is is definitely subtle at points, but he isn't necessarily here. Um, as a kind of secondary dislike, the chapter foreshadows Ned Stark going to talk with Robert about the tourney and how it's too expensive. For the crown to bear the debts for but we never see ned talking with robert you know and we don't even see it in the show i'd really prefer to have another maybe another i'd really have preferred to have a robert ned confrontation which would reinforce the motif that robert is misruling westeros but i guess in george's mind maybe thought that he already made the point well in previous ned chapters but at the same time i think it would have been interesting and good to have that there in the narrative because what happens after this chapter is that the tourney kicks off and Ned is just angry that the tourney is happening but he doesn't we don't get back to that conversation so seemingly there had to be some conversation between this conversation in Ned 4 and what happens in Eddard 5 and Sansa 2 but it just is not featured on the page and I think that's a little bit to um, our disadvantage as readers that we don't get that True. I think, yeah, I think Martin kind of hand waves over a lot of stuff at the beginning of Arya 2, our next King's Landing chapter, where he just, Arya says, uh, Dad's been fighting with the small council again. Yeah. So, like, we're not really sure how much time has passed there, so that covers a wide range of activities. But it's true, Robert kind of drops out the story for a bit. He's not in the next couple Ned chapters. He shows up again in Sansa 2 and Eddard 7, the back-to-back hands turning chapters. Uh, until, until then, he's gone from the page, which I get is the point. Robert's an absentee king. He's off whining and you know, visiting prostitutes and all the things that Robert loves to do. 
but yeah, I agree. It does lead to a, a lack of payoff for the the dynamic in this chapter, the the, the discussion and debates and struggle in this chapter kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, in terms of my likes, I've got two. Um, well, yeah, really two. Uh, look, guys, as you guys know, I'm a simple man with simple tastes. I love a good small council session. And the first session is an especially good one. You've got your traitors, you've got your fools, you've got your sycophants, and then you have Ned. Every time Ned is in session with the small council, it's just a place where George is just getting in deep on a well of great material and writing great drama and dialogue. Like, it's, it's just so much fun to have Ned be there and be aghast at all of these people being like, oh, we'll just take another $100,000 loan. That's fine. Or 100000 Golden Dragon loan. We can do that. That's fine. No worries. Uh, and then, again, on a deeply, deeply personal note, I love Ned's aversion to deficit spending. And uh, perhaps Emmett is ultimately right. I do love Ned Stark. He's a deficit hawk, after all. You know, I, 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 I guess we're birds of a feather, as, as so to speak. Mm-mm-mm. So disappointing, Jeff. <laughs> I, much pref- I, I much prefer the red hawk, so to speak. Ah. Uh, Ching, but um, tish. Anywho, but yeah, I agree. Small council meetings are, are a lot of fun. They're just they're always full of kind of uh, cutting dialogue and interesting concepts, and we're going to be covering a lot more of those as the books go on. Yes, uh, from indeed. various various perspectives, not only Ned's but also Tyrion's, uh, Cersei's. Uh, Jamie hasn't been to a council meeting, but he has his like meeting with the Kingsguard. That's kind of similar to a small council meeting in terms of how it plays out. So yeah, this is something that Martin has always always been very good at. Does does Jamie go to one in a Storm of Swords? The I one where think, I don't where that's where it oh. says that Tywin says that he's that Stannis has fled, and that's where we get the because uh, Tyrion's in prison at that point. Right? Is he there? Yeah, for that I, remember, one? I, I don't know if that's a council wrong. meeting. Or, right, Pycelle is there. So yeah, I think you might be right about that. Actually, I might be. I, I could so be totally see, wrong. Yeah. We'll see when we get to Storm of Swords, but yeah, maybe Jamie does briefly attend a small council meeting. But yes, we see many of them from multiple perspectives, people with varying levels of engagement and tasks, a bunch of different supporting characters. When we get to Storm, we get like Mace Tyrell and his lords yes. going to council. Then there's Cersei's Parade of Fools. We're going to get Nymeria Sand, come Winds of Winter. So it's, yeah, small councils are definitely a consistent highlight of the Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah. Speaking of things to come. Moving into the foreshadowing and groundwork laid down in this chapter. There's quite a bit at that. Uh, the main one is Littlefinger hinting at Ned's fall. As you brought up in your summary, sir, this is very, very blatant foreshadowing, not some of Martin's more subtle stuff. <laughs> uh, Littlefinger says he's leading Ned to the dungeons to slit your throat and seal your corpse up behind a wall. Which uh, alludes to not only Ned ending up in the Black Cells in his final chapter, but also Littlefinger being almost certainly directly involved in Ned's execution. Yep. Which Littlefinger alludes to later in the brothel scene by saying, Accuse the king and you will dance with Illyn Payne before the words are out of your mouth. And of course it is Illyn Payne who will eventually take Ned's head at the end of this book after Robert has already died. And there are strong hints that Littlefinger influenced Joffrey in making that decision. Yep. So we see the already Martin laying the work for Ned's death and how Littlefinger will be involved. Yeah, it's really very prominent on reread how much Martin is laying the foundation for Ned Stark's coming death at the end of the end of the book. And it's 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 great and sad at the same time because Ned is our our main character for a Game of Thrones. And we think, and Martin has said this before in interviews, that he wanted readers to come away with the impression from starting a Game of Thrones that Ned Stark was going to be the hero of the story that he would last until the end. And then he got a certain amount of glee from stripping that uh, assumption from readers' minds and having Ned Stark killed here. 
or rather killed at the end of a Game of Thrones. And having Littlefinger basically say, I'm going to lead you to the dungeons to slit your throat and see your corpse up behind a wall is very much telegraphing what we're going to be seeing at the end of Ned's arc in a Game of Thrones. And then again, the ill and pain reference that Littlefinger makes is also telegraphing what is going to occur with Ned Stark when he dances with the King's justice at the end of a Game of Thrones. Yes, indeed. And of course, after Ned Stark's death, we get the War of Five Kings. We get various people crowning themselves, one of whom, who we see in this chapter, is Renly Baratheon. And we see Martin kind of laying the groundwork in this chapter for Renly's self-image and projected image as a king and how he centers his appeal and the what he offers up as a claim. Uh, Ned says, Renly had been a boy of eight when Robert won the throne, but he, he had grown into a man so like his brother that Ned found disconcerting. Whenever he saw him, it was as if the years had slipped away and Robert stood before him, fresh from his victory on the trident. Hmm. Uh, so that sets up that how Cadlin will describe Renly in A Clash of Kings when she visits, visits his camp at Bitterbridge. She calls him, quote, a ghost in a golden crown and says yeah. that small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervor. He is Robert come again. He is handsome as Robert had been handsome. Yeah. And Renly justifies his crown to Cadlin by claiming that, you know, Robert, you know, won his crown with a war hammer and that Renly means to do the same. So, you know, he's coming up from the south with a big army. So Renly is, is, is framed consistently in the narrative as thinking of himself and presenting himself and being thought of as a young Robert, as a, a, a version of Robert uh, who has not been through the kind of the hardships and disappointments of being a king. And I think you can see that when Ned describes him as uh, fresh from his victory on the Tridents, because, of course, that's the last time that Ned had an unsullied relationship with Robert. This is right mm -hmm. before the murder of Rhaegar's family. And as you said earlier, Ned and Robert had came to a furious divide over that issue. Uh, and ever since then, of course, Ned has had to keep John safe from Robert and is now learning that Robert has gone to seed and isn't a particularly good king. So, of course, he's feeling sentimental for young Robert. And, of course, it's disconcerting for him to see someone who looks exactly like Robert before any of that happens. That again, Renly is this kind of nostalgic image of what Robert was, and back when there was promise and hope for his realm instead of kind of the disappointing reality that, that, that now exists. So already I think we see Martin with a real strong sense of how he intends to use Renly in the story thematically. Yes. And what, what, what Renly means and how he's uh, being described. So, you know, who knows if he... I'm sure he has Renly's death in mind already at this point as he was writing the first book, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's evolving from the pitch letter in which uh, uh, Renly and Stannis didn't appear. But uh, my guess is he's, he's already got Renly's story entirely planned out and exactly what, what it wants to mean is kind of dropping these hints and images there to prepare us for it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Don't really have anything much to add to that. I think it's great. It's always good to get... Well, thank you, sir. Oh, to get some good Renly analysis in. True, true. Got to get the Baratheon brothers in there before we actually get to Clash of Kings. Oh, yeah. Another bit of foreshadowing, as we touched on earlier, involves Ned's orders to Catelyn, preparing the North for war. And you can clearly see the ripple effects of that playing out in, in the later books, as these actions are later taken and these characters are actually dealt with. Ned says, uh, I want a careful watch kept over Theon Greyjoy. If this is war, we shall have sore need of his father's fleet. And then uh, later on in Clash of Kings, when Rob is er, trying to negotiate with Balin, uh, he says, If I'm king in the north, let him be king of the Iron Islands. If that's his desire, I'll give him a crown gladly, so long as he helps us bring down the Lannisters. So you already have this set up in the first book of the Starks kind of 
thinking of Balin Greyjoy's fleet as their ace in the hole, as something they're going to keep in their back pocket and use as needed, and that they're going to use Theon as leverage to make it happen. And of course, Jeff's giggling because of how that turns out, and of the notion of Balin Greyjoy thinking of himself that way. Uh, and we don't we don't know, of course, in this first book how wrong that's going to go. True. But we are getting a sense already of the significance of the Greyjoys to the war effort, and how Theon specifically is the key to that uh, from the Starks' perspective. I guess you know I'm I'm laughing, but at the same time, it's it's unfair for me to to kind of giggle at Rob and, and Ned's belief that Balin Greyjoy will join in the war against the Lannisters if if need be, because that's that's knowledge that we as readers as rereaders have about. Balon Greyjoy because we see him in Theon's chapters and we don't know the type of person that he is. We don't get the sense of who Balon Greyjoy is in A Game of Thrones really besides a former enemy of Ned Stark whose son is now a ward of Winterfell. But it is funny like when you look back at it how kind of delusional the thinking was and I guess you know in in fairness to to my laughing <laughs> do we have to even do that? I don't know whatever. In fairness <laughs> to my laughing at the same time, you you do kind of want to kind of look a little sideways at Ned and Rob and be like, do you think the guy that you just beat and killed a bunch of his sons and now have his son as a hostage is really going to want to join you and fight on your behalf? Really? I mean, okay. I mean, that I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I guess you can believe what you want to believe. Uh, and then when we get Balon in A Clash of Kings, we sh- he's very much not the type of character that Ned and, and Robert believe him to be. He's very much festering, feasting almost on his own regrets and his own grief. And he's projecting that into a need to have revenge on the North and to have his revenge on House Stark and all the wrongs that they've done him, even though he was a total idiot and rebelled unjustly against the king. Exactly. Yeah, couldn't have put it better. They, they definitely misjudged him and didn't take into account the kind of resentment of the Greyjoy cause and how, yeah. that, would, how that would lead the Greyjoys to behave. And, of course, sending Theon himself was, was a huge mistake. Yes. Part. So we'll, we'll get into that when we get to Clash of Kings. But again, the groundwork for that is laid now. And also in Ned's orders, you see the groundwork laid for the significance of the Manderleys and their city of White Harbor. Quote, instruct Lord Manderley that he is to strengthen and repair all his defenses at White Harbor and see that they are well manned. And this is something we get much more into into a dance with dragons in terms of how rich and influential and significant the Manderleys are in the north and their city of White Harbor. Uh, who knows, again, how much Martin had that planned out at this point, but already you see a sense that he knows that the Manderleys are going to be the most powerful lesser house in the north and that White Harbor is extremely significant to the north in terms of both the, their military and their economy. So, And we get into that even before dance, we get into that to Clash of Kings when... Wyman goes to Winterfell, Lord Wyman Manderley, and talks about building a fleet and having a new uh, mint for Rob. And uh, like a White Harbor is going to be like the, the center of all the stru- structural logistical yes. aspects of the North being independent. So uh, our, you can see Ned, obviously Ned isn't thinking about the North as an independent realm at this point, but he does know that if the North has to go to war, if the North has to be self-sufficient and stand for itself, that White Harbor is the key to that. It is, and it's the only real port that the North has, and that is... Very important to his defense because it is likely going to be the spot that if the Lannisters decide that they want to send the fleet up against the north, that that would be the prime spot for them to attack and try to seize the harbor out from the north and utilize that as a throughput for their soldiers and their armies to get into the north. But the other throughput into the north is a place called Moat Kaelin. 
And this is our first reference to Moat Kaelin. And as we're going to find out as the story progresses, it is an important, if not the most important, defensive location in the north. So Ned says to Catelyn, quote, Once you are home, send word to Helmut Tallhart and Galbert Glover under my seal. They are to raise a hundred bowmen each and fortify Moat Kaelin. Two hundred determined archers can hold the neck against an army. And that's really actually the case, as we're going to find out throughout. You know, the Ironborn and Victorian hold, take Moat Kaelin because it's not being occupied at that point when they invade the north. And they're able to hold it for a really long time. And it's only when Theon goes to Moat Kaelin under the banner of peace, which is a lie, of course, in A Dance with Dragons, do the Ironborn surrender. And they've been plagued by attacks from the Bogmen, that is the uh, the reeds, the the, uh, the bog devils, as they call them in, in Dance with Dragons. Uh, there's Helen Reed and his men are attacking the uh, the castle and attacking, uh, using some guerrilla warfare in order to take, in order to plague the the Ironborn. That we actually see the the castle being taken is only taken by surrender, not by force of arms. And you know, it's always been an interesting what if for me is if the Red Wedding hadn't occurred. And Rob's plan had had happened, would he have been actually able to take Moat Kaelin from the Ironborn before, of course, the Boltons take Moat Kaelin by by way of of, their, of its surrender? It's it's a it's a it's an open question. And I'm curious when we get into a Storm of Swords and get into Rob's planning for how he was going to retake the North, whether that would have been successful or not. Seems at least to me, just before we get into a, in the few years before we get into a Storm of Swords, that I think it may have been a successful plan, but that's something to to consider, of course. Rob's a great general. I think it probably would have gone well, but it's it's one of those tantalizing battles that are never fought. Yeah. Uh, in, in a song of ice and fire, like Stannis versus Friendly at Storm's End, uh, for example, that that's a battle that is, is set up for but never occurs. Or you know, Mance's final push at Castle Black doesn't happen because Stannis interrupts. So yeah, those those are always interesting AU's to think about for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then. In terms of just the Game of Thrones itself, the main area of foreshadowing here uh, regards Ned and how he's doing on the job. Because, of course, like we said, this is his first day at the office. It's his first day at the office, and it's not going well. Not just because of the events that occur in the small council session, but because of some of the events surrounding it and Ned's understanding of his role as Hand of the King. And in contrast to an earlier Ned chapter, which I'll talk about in a minute, Ned seems to fundamentally misunderstand his role of, as Hand of the King and the powers that he wields in two key areas, and these are areas that will be impacting him down the road. The first thing that happens is the chapter opens with the small council immediately testing Ned by convening a session without a say-so. The quote is, quote, Grand Maester Purcell had convened an urgent meeting of the small council. The honor of the hand's presence had been requested as soon as it was convenient. You know, from my understanding, it is not Pycelle's role to call the meeting. That's the hand or the king's role. And notice how the council business isn't all that urgent, really. I mean, it's about attorney. It's not about war. It's not about an assassination attempt. It's not about national security, about any of those things. It's about having a, a series of games. It's all about testing Ned and seeing what kind of man he is and calling it immediately when Ned enters the Red Keep was likely, it seems to me like a little finger move. A little bit more worrisome, though, is when Ned is in the small council session, he thinks about his role as Hand of the King. And here's how he thinks about it. Quote, he would have to remember that he was no longer in Winterfell, where only the king stood higher. Here, he was but first among equals. 
No, not really, Ned. You're not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You had it right in your first chapter when you said, quote, The hand of the king was the second most powerful man in the seven kingdoms. He spoke with the king's voice, commanded the king's armies, drafted the king's laws, at times even sat upon the iron throne to dispense king's justice when the king was absent or sick or otherwise indisposed. Robert was offering him a responsibility as large as the realm himself. What Ned is communicating in his first chapter is that he's looking as the king as essentially the ancient Roman master of horse. So in, in Ro ancient Roman society, when a dictator would be appointed, there would be only one person of secondary um, power, and that was the master of horse. The master of horse spoke with the authority as the dictator, and the only thing the master of horse couldn't do was to contradict what the dictator of, of Rome had said. As hand of the king, Ned has a lot more power than he thinks that he has here. He's not a first among equals, he is the he leads the small council session in the place of the king. For all intents and purposes, he is the king when Robert isn't there. And that's really going to have a lot of consequences for Ned down the road. His perspective on his political role as hand of the king is not in line with what his true power is. And that will have a lot of impact as we're going to be seeing in later Ned chapters in A Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's a failure of institutional power and authority, that Ned doesn't really make full use of his office. I mean, this yes. is something we'll see in direct contrast to Tyrion in The Clash of Kings, who really does make full use of the powers of the hand and even even pushes them beyond what, what they're normally set <laughs> at. But yeah, like, if Ned doesn't have to, like, you know, send Jory to ask Sir Hugh to please come, please, please, like, send him with a warrant, send him with a city watch, make yeah. him come, you're the hand of the king, you can tell Sir Hugh where to go. Right. Like, if, if Ned doesn't Ned doesn't have to trust Jano Slint, fire Jano Slint. Right. You're his boss. Put Jory Cassell in charge. You can. You, we know he can do that because Tyrion does it in Clash of Kings immediately mm -hmm. because he knows Jano Slint screwed over the previous hand. Ned, you know, despite his description of the hand as the second most powerful person in this first chapter, as you mentioned, Ned doesn't really seem to realize that he has authority over these people. And I think part of it is because he's intimidated by this new setting, yes. by the, all these things he didn't know, by the fact that Robert is, is laying down on a job. I think that kind of overwhelms Ned, and he, he, he kind of forgets or puts aside the idea that he really can take an activist role in King's Landing politics. And I do think we see that in contrast to Tyrion. I do like the idea that Littlefinger got called the council together for this meeting. I never considered that, but you're right. It is, it is under suspicious circumstances given how kind of banal the topic is and that Ned just got there and that there's no urgency for it. I wouldn't be surprised if that's, again, a, a, little, a little petty power move on his part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Littlefinger, let's now talk about something we've been hitting at throughout this podcast episode. Who broke the bank? Was it King Robert or was it Littlefinger? One response, Emmett. Littlefinger. Yeah, you're right. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. <laughs> and we will see you all now, actually. So uh, if we go back into this chapter, we'll, I'll read the quote again for you guys who are not necessarily following along with us. The quote is from, from Edward Four is, Ned was stunned. Are you claiming the crown is three billion gold pieces in debt? The crown is more than six million gold pieces in debt, Lord Stark. The Lannisters are the biggest part of it, but we have also borrowed from Lord Tyrell, the Iron Bank of Bravos, and several Tyroshi trading cartels. Of late, I've had to turn to the faith. The high septon haggles worse than a Dornish fishmonger. Ned was aghast. Aerys Targaryen left a treasury flowing with gold. How could you let this happen? Littlefinger gave a shrug. The master of coin finds the money. The king and the hand spend it. Oh, is that all, Littlefinger? Hmm. I wonder. Yeah, it's it's 
an example of false modesty, I think, false humility on Littlefinger's part. They just he just casually dismisses. Oh, all I do is 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 find the money. And when I'm told, it's interesting how he puts it. He doesn't say, like the king in the hand order me, and then I go find the money. He puts himself first. I find the money. Yeah. And then the king in the hand spend it. And yeah, I think that's a clue that Littlefinger is really the one driving the operations here. Uh, you know, he. He's constantly covering his tracks and, and making sure no one can understand his job but him. Uh, and, you know, one, one gets the sense throughout that he's, he's not really telling anyone involved, whether that's Robert or Ned or the Lannisters, the full truth about what he's doing with the books. Yeah. It, when you look at the evidence, and before I get into the evidence, I want to cite our friend Stephen Atwell's Who Stole Westeros essay from the Tower of the Hand ebook, A Hymn for Spring. Robert's tourneys, his feasts, his prodigious appetites, all the wine that he consumes, they really don't account for the large amount of debt that we see that the crown currently has. And another user on Westeros.org by the name of Ragnarok put it like this, quote, The normal expenses under Ares plus an equal amount in Robert's waste would only account for 20% of the total expenses of a tenfold increase. Robert could waste four times as much money as was spent under errors each year and still pay the normal expenses that existed under errors, and that only accounts for half of the money spent. And then Stephen Atwell's point from him a spring is, quote, In order to equal his yearly income, let alone exceed it and be forced to borrow, Robert Baratheon would have had to throw 22 tourneys a year. Now, that's just me, just me speaking here. That seems like a rather high and actually totally impossible number of tourneys for Robert to throw in a year. And in the books, we don't have anywhere near that number of tournaments accounted for. You know, at most, and against setting Steve Atwell here, he did the legwork here and estimated that at most, Robert threw one to two tournaments per year during his reign. So that really can't account for the amount of debt that the realm has at this juncture in the story. Yeah, and the, you know, tourneys are big events. They're supposed to be special. You're supposed to look forward to them and everyone right. gets together and you get the special... Everyone's got their best clothes, and all the merchants come out, and it's like, you're not throwing one every two weeks. Yeah. That, I mean, not only is that defeats the purpose, it's also just logistically impossible. You need setup. You need to hire people. You need to have everything in place. Like, this only makes sense if Robert was doing it literally every day. Yeah. Which, it, it, it doesn't seem like even even he would be capable of doing. It's it's not not a realistic way of accounting for the sheer amount of money spent. Uh, it's it, What it sounds like is a way of covering for the amount of money spent. It's just a hand-waving dismissal. Oh, Robert, with his feasts and his tourneys, you know. That's what you say when you're trying to cover up a scam, not when that's the actual that's the actual truth of millions of golden dragons spent. Right. And we don't see evidence in it in a Game of Thrones either. He throws one tournament, which is the tourney of the hand. And then in A Clash of Kings, we have that kind of really ridiculous tournament at the start in Sansa's first chapter, where, again... The expense is not that high, and but you also see that it's only a occasional thing, and for good reason. You can't pull the knights and the lords of Westeros out of their castles and keeps and bring them down to King's Landing again like every two weeks. They wouldn't be able to rule wisely and well. They would be constantly coming down to King's Landing at the expense of the small folk and the different matters that they have to address in their actual rule. And I get it that, that Robert is apathetic to rule, but it's impossible, really, for 22 tournaments to be thrown in a year. So 
Another aspect of rule that often results in great debt, at least in medieval times, is warfare. So in a time of war, medieval monarchs and or lords would take out loans to afford the expense of building ships, armoring and equipping men for battle, hiring mercenaries, and so on and so forth. But when we look at the history of Westeros, the last real war that was that occurred in Westeros occurred nine years before the events from A Game of Thrones, and that's the Greyjoy Rebellion. And since then, it's been entirely peaceful, right? I mean, there hasn't been a single war that's been fought on the shores of Westeros. There hasn't been an expedition to Essos or any of the... There hasn't been an expedition to Essos or the Stepstones or any of these type of Targaryen-type follies that we see in the world of Ice and Fire. It's been a pretty peaceful time, so that doesn't that can't, in my opinion, account for the amount of debt that's been accruing under Robert's reign um, in the past fifteen years that he's been ruling. Yeah, and Robert is also he's not Black Heron, he's not Egan the Fourth, he's not Eris II. He doesn't have a lot of white elephants on his record. Yeah, there's there's no evidence of Robert like sinking thousands and thousands of gold dragons into like a you know titan of bravos size statue of himself right like there's nothing there's nothing like that that would account for like oh that's where it all went he's not there's no yeah if the most you can point to on his record is one really brief localized war and a, a, a smattering of tourneys that 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 doesn't account for expending his regular income let alone going into debt right like i don't think there's any any way you can make those numbers work no, so that so the numbers are not working, and then if you factor in the income that the crown would be receiving, Westeros, from what we can tell from the Game of Thrones, is experiencing a time of peace and prosperity. You know they haven't had a winter since the year of the False Spring, which occurred in the reign of Aerys the Second Targaryen, which is fifteen, sixteen years before the events from the Game of Thrones. So likely you would see an increase in farming and agriculture and produce being produced, and in a time of peace. Seems like that would generate something of an economic boom in Westeros, and we do see that you know a lot of the small folk are suffering at, at to later to greater or lesser extents, but it's not the dire circumstances that we're going to find later on during a time of warfare in the War of the Five Kings, and that I believe we're going to be finding in the Winds of Winter as winter starts to set in over the continent. That's true. So that begs the question to use that phrase incorrectly, but that's just how people <laughs> use it now. What's going on? How how did this? How did the crown get into this situation? Then, if you can't really make sense of it through Robert's expenditures, well, it's deliberately complicated to understand. As, as Tyrion finds out in the Clash of Kings when he takes over his hand of the king and tries to go over Littlefinger's books. Quote: Peter Baelish had not believed in letting gold sit about and grow dusty. That was for certain. But the more Tyrion tried to make sense of his accounts, the more his head hurt. It was all very well to talk of breeding dragons instead of locking them up in the treasury. But some of these ventures smelled worse than weak old fish. I wouldn't have been so quick to let Joffrey fling the antlermen over the walls if I'd known how many bloody bastards had taken loans from the crown. He would have to send Bronn to find their heirs, but he feared that would prove as fruitful as trying to squeeze silver from a silverfish. <laughs> and I'm sorry, that was actually a storm of swords when Tyrion takes over his master of coin yep. after Littlefinger is dispatched to the Vale. Uh, so that's that's already true, a glaring warning sign. Tyrion is, Tyrion is smart. Tyrion is relatively modern in his thought process a lot of the times. He's a Lannister. He likes to read. He likes history. You know, you'd think he'd be the kind of guy who could, like, go through a ledger and figure it out, right? Like, he's not clueless. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but he's going repeatedly through it, and not only is he not figuring it out, but he's getting the sense that it's deliberate that he can't figure it out. That little finger has been... Cooking the books and the implication with the antler men, maybe that he's getting rid of creditors, like, un, you know, troublesome creditors, 
uh, that are that are, are giving him giving him the business about their money. So this even even before you start digging into what's really going on here, there is a sense that Littlefinger is the one covering up what's really happening. Yeah, you're you're right that we are intended as readers to look at what Tyrion is saying in A Storm of Swords and think there's something amiss about the books and about what Littlefinger has been doing as Master of Coin. And we should be looking back again then to A Game of Thrones and to this editor chapter and saying there is something amiss about the crown being six million golden dragons in debt. You know, especially when you take a look at what Tyrion thinks when he's the acting hand of the king in The Clash of Kings, where he thinks, where he's considering Littlefinger and he thinks, quote, he did not simply collect the gold and lock it up in a treasure vault. No, he paid the king's debts and promises and put the king's gold to work. He bought wagons, shops, ships, houses. He bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. He bought wool from the north and linen from the south and lace from lists, stored it, moved it, dyed it, sold it. The golden dragons bred and multiplied, and Littlefinger lent them out and brought them home with hatchlings, unquote. Whew, that's a lot to kind of take in, but we'll try and break it down for you guys very briefly and as simply as we can. There's something extremely damning in what Tyrion is saying there in that passage from A Clash of Kings. The quote, paid the king's debts in promises. And I'm going to give full credit where it's due. Uh, this comes from the Radio Westeros' first of two-part episodes on Littlefinger. And they define what Littlefinger is doing as engaging in extreme fraud via way of deferred interest. Meaning that Littlefinger is paying the crown's debts and promissory notes that it ensures that the interest owed on the loans only goes up. So kind of in layman terms, Littlefinger is paying off debts that he is making, with all of his purchases, with more loans and at a higher interest rate. Kind of even put even more simply than that, it'd be like if you paid off your credit card bill with another credit card, but this one had a higher interest rate. So as you can probably start to sense, we're about to put the finger on Littlefinger as the dude who is entirely responsible for the massive debt that the crown owes. Yeah, he's running a con. Financial wizardry is one thing, but the cooking the books to this degree means you're never going to actually pay off the money you owe. You're just kind of building this house of cards, like you say, pay, pays the king's debts and promises, and then you can present this to uh, Robert and, and John Aaron as, as increasing the, the income for the crown, but he's got he's got no plan and tends to like run out of town when the Iron Bank shows up, yeah. or when the the sparrows show up, or when you know it's it's actually time to pay up. Littlefinger intends to skip out on the bill and leave the actual crown to manage it. Of course, as you know, by the time Tyrion is trying to make sense of his books in the Storm of Swords, Littlefinger has already left King's Landing for the Vale, and I, I doubt he's ever going to come back. Yeah, it's it's almost like the guy who orders. He goes to a fancy steak restaurant. He orders the biggest, best steak. He orders wine bottle after wine bottle after wine bottle. He has appetizers and dessert. He says that he'll take the tab from the other tables around the restaurant. And just before the waiter comes back with the bill, he's nowhere to be found. Like he's in the veil when when the Iron Bank of Bravos comes and says, hey, pay up. Time for you guys to pay up. And when the sparrows come in and Cersei thinks that she's being extremely clever and negotiates her way out of paying the the, the crown's debts to the to the faith of the seven by allowing them to rearm, which is extremely foolish, as we're going to find out in future episodes. That's that's Littlefinger in a nutshell, the guy who skips out on his bill before it's due. Uh, great points, Jeff. And but that that does again bring up a question: like if Littlefinger is is, is pulling these schemes and and uh, you know bringing deferred interest to Westeros, shouldn't that 
shouldn't the vaults be even more overflowing with gold than they were under Mad Era? Shouldn't this, I mean, even if it's extremely sleazy, shouldn't it be good for the crown's finances in terms of just how much money's in the vault? Yeah, it, it should be, right? It should, you, Littlefinger should be bringing in more money into the into the treasury, right? The vault should be overflowing with the level of gold that Aerys II had. But it's a bit even more complicated than that. If we take Tyrion's quote and look at it a little bit more deeply, the vaults in the treasure store would be overflowing, and why aren't they? Embezzlement, really. Plain and simple, Littlefinger is transferring wealth into hard property, wagons, shops, ships, houses, linens, grain... Littlefinger is then taking the crown's money and cleaning it in high-value items that only he, and this is important, has access to. And if those wagons, shops, ships, houses, grain, and linens make profits or are sold on the market, does Littlefinger return the money to the crown? Well, sure, maybe likely Littlefinger will return a small profit to the crown's treasury, as evidenced by Tyrion saying that he brought golden dragons home with quote-unquote hatchlings, but I'd wager that by and large, uh, no. Laugh out loud, no way. I would say that Littlefinger is keeping the lion's share of profits for himself. And this, it makes sense in the story, too, because Littlefinger has an obscene amount of wealth and money. And he, things like it, when we find out in A Feast for Crows that he buys off all of the debt that the Corbury's own. Where does he have that money? Where's that money coming from that he can buy off the Corbury debt? He doesn't really seemingly have a steady stream of illegitimate income. A steady stream of illegitimate income? Yeah, I think he has that in stores. And he also pays... Sansa's dowry as well, and I and I think there's been there's been a debate in the fan community whether the dowry is is Winterfell, but if it's not Winterfell, if he actually paid with real coin, he had plenty of that in store for himself from all of those illicit enterprises that he's making, in illegally using the crown's resources and wealth in order to purchase all of these different high value items that he is continuously buying, selling utilizing and taking a huge profit off of. Very true, sir. I think that makes the case uh, beautifully. I totally agree. Uh, you can tell from Tyrion's description in The Clash of Kings that not only is Littlefinger buying and selling and speculating on his own, but he's he's corrupting and bribing all these people who would otherwise be reporting on him. Right. So they're, they're, they're not going to Robert with news about what Littlefinger is doing. He can, he can safely get this done. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think that's a... Solid amount of evidence that it's Littlefinger, not Robert, who is the true, true culprit of the Crown's debts. But why? What's 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 the goal there, Jeff? You tell me. What's the goal here, Emmett? I've done too much talking already. Oh, to borrow a phrase from you, it's the usual Littlefinger fuckery. He's, <laughs> he's beggaring the realm, riding the chaos, climbing to the top. Um, he's giving himself leverage over the Crown. He's ensuring, as we said earlier, that other creditors will come calling and that'll weaken the Crown. And uh, he's giving himself a lot of allies in King's Landing. He's setting up an economy that he can manipulate from afar if he ever needs quick cash. And of course, he's 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 also, I think, just doing it to a certain extent because he can. We brought that up with Littlefinger before that he's he he, he delights in the game for its own sake. Yeah. And yeah, so for me, this is what leads to the the kind of the takeaway from the debt situation, especially given that M Martin's politics on the whole lean lean somewhat left is yes. the the villain the villain here isn't so much uh, deficit spending, although certainly medieval <laughs> governments are far less able to effectively do that than modern governments. True, uh, where where it's you have a variety of tools that make that a little less dangerous, but uh, the true villain here is financial corruption, is, mm -hmm. is embezzlement, uh, bribery. Uh, accounting fraud, all the practices that Littlefinger is undergoing. The problem with Robert as a king is not that he's spending too much money, but that he is not paying attention to how his money is being spent. 
And I think Littlefinger has taken full advantage of that. It's also almost like a historical watershed moment in which someone invents high finance. Like, like the reason Littlefinger can't get caught is that no one really knows how this works. Even Tyrion and Jon yeah. Arryn, smart guys, like, they're not used to doing their own books. Yeah. They have people to do that for them. People like Littlefinger. <laughs> so I think it's also an interesting critique of this political system where the ostensible people in charge are, are, are limited by their lack of skills and know-how and actual investment in, in their practices. So people like Littlefinger can get away with it. I think it's the, uh, the ultimate condemnation of Westeros's political social system. One of the ultimate condemnations is that Littlefinger can so easily get away with this. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a critique of our own financial system as well, in that I've known a fair number of folks who are financial planners in the real world. And I've watched enough TV to know that some of these guys are skeezy motherfuckers who will essentially direct people to make bad investments that will net them nothing that is the investors, but will net the financial planner plenty of stuff. Things like people steering investments towards banks that they work for secretly or that they work for in the past that they can pull a percentage off of. You know, this is something that is... An overall critique of society is that we put a lot of trust in people that don't have our best interests at heart. That's not their primary motivation to do things, but rather to enhance their own prosperity and their own wealth. And Littlefinger is definitely that type of character. I'm not, and for the for the record, I'm not saying that all financial planners are are that way. I'm saying that there are some folks in the market who are like that. Littlefinger is very much like that type of character, though. He is the guy who is steering the crown towards making bad investments, profiting off of those investments, and then letting other people, Cersei, Stannis even, hold the debt or hold the bag for him. Because as we find out in A Dance with Dragons, the Iron Bank says, fuck you to Cersei, and then they go north to find Stannis, and they're willing to back him in his quest for the, for the Iron Throne because they think that he's going to be a better investment in the long term. All the while... Even Stannis, another smart guy, like John Aaron, like Tyrion, a smart guy, he describes it as it was not my debts, it was Robert's debts. You know, and that wins a winner's sample chapter from Theon where he's talking with Tycho Nestoris. So, yeah, it, it's it's really fun for me to get into some of these kind of more financial details of, of Westeros. And I think it was fun for Martin to kind of plant this breadcrumb trail that Littlefinger is the one actually responsible for it. And we'll see if there's going to be some ramifications for Littlefinger. I certainly hope so, as, as someone who believes in the value of good investments and the value of being smart with your money. I sure want a financial criminal like Littlefinger to pay the price for doing all the wrong that he's done. And, you know, if you think about it, if you take all the figures, the money, the investments, the properties, put all that shit away, it's impacting actual people. Like that Tyrion quote alluded to, all the antler men were tossed over the side of the walls of King's Landing because they owed the crown debts, because they were a pawn in Littlefinger's game to create the maximum amount of chaos for him to profit and to ruin Westeros and in order to climb the ladder towards greater and higher heights of power. So this is something that lots of people will say that Littlefinger's is not Littlefinger's greatest crime. I would perhaps say that it is because it's had the most impact on the most number of people. It's had impact on small folks, on merchants on traders, on barkeeps, on all of these types of different people. And it's going to continue to have impacts in the Winds of Winter and in A Dream of Spring, at least until the others come, of course. Amen, brother. I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. So that is Eddard for Game of Thrones, Ned's first chapter in King's Landing, one of many. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, for listening. 
yeah, it's been a pleasure doing this episode. And if you've liked this episode and you are like, man, I would love to do something for you guys because we're awesome. I'm, I'm just kidding. You don't, <laughs> not all that awesome. But if you like to, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. You can't really rate us, but you can leave us a comment there if you like to. We do read all the comments and reviews. So if you're interested in doing that, we would love to do that. And I think we're coming up to the point where we probably need to do some more of those fun iTunes reviews again. We haven't done that in a few episodes, right? That's true. We should. Good point, Jeff. We'll have to do that soon. Uh, you can check us out at, at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter.com, or email us at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, I'm at Port Quentin on Twitter, and I'm, you can also find me at portquentin.tumblr.com. And I am at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter and Brenda B. Fish on Reddit. My website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. And as a final reminder, for those of you who are interested in supporting us on Patreon, our next Patreon-only episode is coming your way June 28th. And again, it's about the end game of Stannis Baratheon. You can find us there at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Yes, indeed. And you can join us next week, guys, for our next episode as we return to Castle Black for Tyrion 3. See you guys then. The Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit. And the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Sorry we didn't get to thank yous this week. We'll do them next week. And we will see you guys next time.